Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, January 25th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. I think it's kind of common knowledge now. I mean, I had a couple of people ask me yesterday, is Freehold leaving us? <laughs> and the answer is, I'll let Freehold answer, answer the question as he sees Are fit. you leaving us? But but we've, we've known about this for a week or two. We've been in steady negotiation. He turned down our last offer of $7.1 million annually. Mm-hmm. He says the grass is greener in places that I've spoken about um, <laughs> About heading. My, he, he blames me for this. Uh, I mean, he says well, you you wax um, nostalgically or, or poetically about lands out there um, getting away. Now, I've, I'm on the record that I have no intent at all. If I were to win the, the $100 million lottery, and I bought me a ranch in Wyoming or Montana. I don't have any interest. Rest assured, I'm not going off the grid. I want electricity. I, I want. You want plumbing? I want internal combustion-powered pickup trucks. <laughs> you know, I, I want all the amenities of life. I just want to be left alone. I want to get away. I, I'm not writing a manifesto. I'm not putting bombs in the mail. But Freehold is um is, is attempting to do something similar to what I've romanced about. Freehold, I won't disclose your future plans, and I'll allow you to elaborate as much as you see fit. You northern aggressors are kind of you know rude and nasty to southerners anyway. So <laughs> if you say it's none of your business, we would expect somebody from um the, the the land of northern aggression to say it's none of our business. Opine, if you will, Freehold. It's none of your business. Okay, okay. I figured that. I <laughs> no, figured I'm, that. I'm going to Montana. Okay, going to Montana. Yep. Um, taking another job. Yes, in Montana. Sir. Do you know that Montana, because I'm doing this for you, not me. Do you know that Montana outside of Alaska has the most extreme weather in all of America? Yep. It's the situational problem. Maybe that's what he likes. Well, I mean, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, um, I think it was John who said, ain't no blizzards in Stumphole. I mean, you can get away <laughs> and be left alone, but ain't no blizzards. Um, you're going to the land of extreme weather is what you're doing. Um, and I wish you well. And I mean that sincerely. You'll be with us. Uh, I hope the rest of the day today and tomorrow <laughs> and Friday, and then you're you're out of here, Rev, scrambling about what do we do now. Um, it may just be the two of us, Rev. I think it will be for a while, and that's how the word got out is we posted a basically a, a job opening on our social media for the radio station a few days ago, and, and it, that's how the word got out, I yeah. guess. I had they a couple of folks. People had, speculated, is Rev gone? Yeah, I had a couple. I've tried. Uh, I had a couple <laughs> yeah, of people. Have. I had a couple of people reach out and say, that sounds like freeholds leaving. So the name stuck. I mean, I'm proud of that. But I mean, the one thing I can look back as a me or an accomplishment is, you know, I'm pretty good at tagging well, maybe people. Maybe that's with why nicknames. he's leaving. He didn't like the name. Maybe, well, that, I mean, maybe he just got tired of that. I just think he got tired of Southerners. I think the <laughs> um the smiling faces, the beautiful places, mm-hmm. the friendliness, uh, the hospitality is just too much for freehold. The land of northern aggression. If he's told me this before. You can walk down a street in, 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 in the land of northern aggression and not say a word to anybody. You won't walk a city block in South Carolina without somebody saying, how you doing? Yeah. You know, well, what you up to? Is everything good with your... the, the head nod or, <laughs> you know. Well, I, mean, I, I walk, how I you was, doing? When my son was at the hospital for special surgeries, um, I was walking, I don't know, back to the hospital or away from the hospital one morning, going to get a cup of coffee, maybe getting out and about, just kind of getting a, a breath of fresh air or polluted air in New York. Um <laughs> And I can remember like walking and and feeling a hand, like like the the back of a hand, kind of nudge me to one side. So I mean, I you know graciously stepped aside, and it was some like eighty five year old woman <laughs> in high heel shoes walking Mach three, you know, trying to get wherever it was she was trying to get. And she didn't say a word. She wasn't rude. She didn't say excuse me. 
She didn't say, get out of my way. She just politely took her hand, kind of nudged me to one side and went on about her business. Mm -hmm. Never made eye contact. Never said, excuse me. Never said, you know, you Southern dunts. Uh, what are you wandering around up here for? And I guess it's just a way of life. I mean, you've you've kind of um, led me to believe that in some of those heavily populated metropolitan areas, Freehold, that's just normal. Yeah, and um, here's the the way I look at it is I don't I don't think us doing that is being rude. I really don't. I think it, it, a lot of it has to do with you know we're um, conscious of people's time. You know, um, we're being conscious of that. So we're trying to get things done. You know, if you go to like Walgreens or whatever, like up north, they're going really quick. They're not saying any small talk. They're going really quick. They're trying to get. And that's just the difference. You know, what about, like, yeah. But it's a lot of people in a little place. I mean, it's densely populated. There aren't many places down south outside of maybe Miami and Atlanta that are that densely populated. And I get it. I mean, if that many people in that small an area are trying to get to point A, well, from point A to point B, you, you got to kind of make your way. Um, and, and and I'll tell you this, as a Southerner, I am bothered at times by how much we communicate with one another. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm in line at the grocery store, and, and it's obvious the person in me goes to that grocery store every week. And the cashier in the grocery store are talking about, you know, is mom still in the hospital? You know, uh, isn't grandma's birthday next week? And I'm like, hey, I got a lemon uh, you know, and, and a box of salt and, you know, uh, <laughs> and some tequila in yeah, the car. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm going to get that. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to get that. I hadn't gotten that yet. Um, don't drink tequila. Tequila made me sick back in the day. Uh, and I'm talking about Spanish, Spanish gagging. Somebody down there bought shots and mm. I was partaking. I, I had a similar those, experience. And I've just, I don't think I've had a drop of tequila since really then. Um, not knowingly. I mean, I may have gone somewhere and, you know, some of the, um, some of the pre-mixed drinks may have included tequila. I'm not a big drinker. I joke around a lot about drinking bourbon, but I—I I mean, I'll, I'm a zero drinker during the week. I could go the next three months and not drink a drop of anything. But if I go to Gamecock football games, I'm normally taking a drink. If I'm on the beach with my wife, I'm normally taking a drink. I don't drink anywhere else. Somebody asked me the other day, "You think you need help with what? Your drinking problem?" <laughs> no. Well, all you talk about is drinking. I mean, I'm the, the only places on this planet. There, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the beach with my wife and Gamecock Park telling everybody how good I was when I played mm -hmm. um, football back in the day. The older I get, the better I was. Embellishment Club gets even more colorful and embellishing um, after you've had a drink or two or three. So, um, so remember when, remember when Nikki Haley was being accused of having an affair and an mm -hmm. extramarital affair or two or three um to recall that yeah the news broke toward the end of the campaign i can remember real well because i'm running for lieutenant governor while nikki's running for governor and we would i mean very often be at the same event and and i'd give my speech as a candidate for lieutenant governor winning the republican primary nikki would give her her speech as a, you know the republican nominee for lieutenant governor and there was a particular moment i've told rev this story there was a particular moment that I'm walking off the stage. I mean, once again, the news is, and some of Nikki's um, competitors were shopping that story, and you know how that is. I mean, it's nasty and dirty, but it is what it is. And um, and there was a rumor that Nikki had had an extramarital affair, and there was some reporting about whether or not it's true. So um, so her competitors, and I'm thinking about 
Henry and Gresham and Andre and Larry Grooms was in. I don't remember who um, perpetuated the argument, but they did. And um, and it stuck to some degree. So um, so you've got a, a candidate who's really making ways in the Republican primary, but she's being accused of having an extramarital affair. Um, anyway, we go to Greenville and Nikki gives her speech. And no, I'd given my speech. I'm a candidate for lieutenant governor, so I'm the opening act, so to speak. I give I give my speech in Greenville, and Nikki's walking onto the stage, and we'd got to know one another. I mean, you, you beat around on a campaign trail for a year, year and a half. You kind of get a friendliness and a camaraderie with one another. And um, I mean, yeah, it's game on, you know, when you're running against people. But but there's still a humanism about it. There's a human element that um, you know, you're you're kind of respecting what it is they're trying to do, and they have some degree of respect for what it is you're trying to do. Anyway, I'm walking off the stage after giving my um, speech. Nikki's walking on the stage, and we embraced. I mean, we just embraced. And somebody took a picture with, with a cell phone. And uh, and this is during the middle of the time Nikki's accused of having an extramarital affair. And I wake up the next morning, and, and my campaign's in panic mode. And somebody had put it on a blog, one of these political blogs in South Carolina, um, Nikki and I embracing and, and, the, and the caption said, not him too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll never, I mean, I know who did it and we're friends now. Uh, and he says, I regret doing that. I said, no, you don't. Cause you got a bunch of hits and clicks and, right. and all these other right. good things. Well, I couldn't help but think of that saga, that story. When I saw Mike Pence and unclassified documents, not him <laughs> not too, him too. <laughs> not the Boy Scout. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, not the, somebody said, um, the lawyer goes to Mike Pence and says, um, uh, Mr. Vice President, we have found some classified documents in your personal residence. And he says, son of a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can imagine what the what oh, yeah. Trump would have said. Right. <laughs> Trump would have said, they're mine. Leave them alone. Yeah. Don't, don't. Anyway, uh, yeah, I thought about that this morning when Mike Pence, th- there's several angles we can take with, with Mike Pence. Um, Tucker promoted an angle yesterday that it's an attempt to um, – to show people how dastardly Trump was to give Biden cover. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I do know this. If Pence is a, a bit diabolical, I don't know that he is. I mean, I think Trump, um, maybe you can say tweeted out on True Social because it's not Twitter. Right. Trump did whatever you do on True Social. Right. Um, he prophesied. He truth. Hey, truth. There you go. Yeah. Or he socialed. Um, <laughs> right. And he said, leave Mike Pence alone. Mike's an honest guy. Well, I think most of America believe Mike Pence is an honest guy. They don't want him to be their president, but they believe he's an honest guy. They think he's an honorable and decent man, and they think if um, if Mike Pence is caught with unclassified, or excuse me, with classified material, it's probably unintentional. I, I just don't think Pence is the kind of guy that we can suspect. You know, meeting up with Hunter Biden under a bridge, and 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 you know, have you sold this secret? Because I'm thinking about selling this, you know, government secret. I mean, I, I'm not deeply concerned about Mike but, Pence but, but having I thought about possession. this. What, what is wrong with our classified document management and control? Well, it's too many system. classified documents. And maybe that's it. Well, I mean, the, but, see, there, there's a misnomer going around. Because if we know about this, you know that these things are all over. I mean, senators, sure. homes, well, congressmen, I mean, they have there, to be, there's right? There's four and a half million people who have, um, you know, uh, clearance. There are about a million and a half people who have top secret clearance. I went back and looked this morning. I mean, we had Neil yesterday. Um, there's top secret sensitive compartmented information. Uh, the, the the verbiage or the, the um, what am I trying to say? The, um, the, the acronym would be TS slash SCI. 
I mean, that's in the language. That's top secret, um, sensitive, compartmented information. Um, we got one and a half million people who have the, you know, the privilege of reviewing or viewing or, or you know, having in their possession. But, but there's a misnomer about the vice president. Uh, the vice president can only declassify information if he's the originator. If the vice uh-huh. president classifies something, he has the authority to declassify because he's the originator. Uh, that that's inside baseball lingo in that world. But but here's what we can hope for. I don't have any idea what happened. I mean, I, I don't. I'm a little bit like you, Reb. I think it's as simple as too many classified documents and too many people have access to the classified documents. That uh, there are phone calls and the um, the transcripts of the phone calls have been classified. Well, I mean, I would imagine there's some phone calls that do need to be classified. But but from what I'm gathering, it's like 80% of the uh, the um, the verbal transactions in the Oval Office are classified. And I just think the American public, you know, if you want to really go, go the other way, you could say the government doesn't deserve to have that many secrets. The American public deserve to know more than we know about whatever it is um, we're discussing here. And yeah, when, when I saw um, Pence's name and, and classified, the first thing I thought of was... And I don't think Pence is this diabolical. Wish he was, but I don't think he is. Um, if Pence is trying to um, come clean, in other words, if Mike Pence has a press conference today and says, look, I'd love to sit down with the House Judiciary Committee and explain why it is I had classified material in my possession, and I'm willing to tell I mean, in all honesty, it's a felony. I mean, the three right. things that we're sure of, I mean, there's no debate on this. I mean, Donald Trump committed a felony. Joe Biden committed a felony. Mike Pence committed a felony. I mean, we can talk about degrees of severity and intent and and, and malice in their hearts. I mean, you know, were they trying to be misleading? Was it a calculated decision to to to, to gain, um, you know, monetarily? I don't know any of the answers. We forgot a name on that list. Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Hillary Clinton. You're right. She, she's another uh, has been that is on that list. <laughs> but um, but all of those people. I mean, they committed a felony. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's pretty easy to define. Now, now, we can, you know, argue about, you know, intent. And and once again, that's a big word. And is it a criminal activity or not? But um, but if Mike Pence is trying to aid and assist the Republican cause, I don't have any idea what, what Pence is up to here. Um, he could make Biden look bad by cooperating. I mean, he could say, look, I made a mistake. Biden says he made a mistake. I'm going to show you how you clean up a mistake sooner than later. I mean, I'm writing Kevin McCarthy a letter, and I'm saying, hey, get, 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 get me an audience with Jim Jordan sooner than later, and let's televise it, and let me answer every question. Let me put my hand before God Almighty and, uh, and, and say, you know, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, and let me explain how I got myself in this, in this situation. And I think that really challenges, because Biden and Pence are saying pretty much the same thing, honest mistake. Didn't know we had it, weren't aware that we had it, but we had it nonetheless. And there's got to be some, you know, I don't want to say penalty or punishment, but there's got to be some review of how a former couple of former vice presidents ended up with classified material. And if Pence were uh, more political than I think he is, he would reach out to McCarthy today in a very formal fashion and say, I want to to clear my name. I mean, I made a mistake, but I want the public to clearly know that, that, that I never had any intent, you know, to, 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 to advantage myself monetarily or my family for that matter. I mean, his daughter wrote a book about cats. Come on, man. I mean, his daughter's not Hunter Biden, right? 
I mean, there's nobody mistaken the, the Pence family for the Biden family. From what we know, I mean, there, there may be something there that we don't know. But from what we gather, they're almost like the Waltons, you know, or, or, or leave it to Beaver. I mean, that's who we uh, assume the Bidens, excuse me, the um, the, uh, the, the Pences are. But, but the Bidens are a completely and totally different animal. They, we, we believe sincerely they transact in, uh, in government information and in the, uh, the power of a power, excuse me, the, um, the allure of a powerful politician. We don't have any idea. Uh, what the similarities are, but, but, but Tucker believes that a lot of this is to embarrass Trump. You know, Trump didn't, Trump didn't play by the rules. Trump, you know, went renegade. He went rogue. He did the way, I mean, I, I don't think any Trump supporter would deny that, that, you know, I, I told my daughter a couple of nights ago, we were talking on the phone and she said, what do you make of this? And I said, Trump's a bit petulant. Trump didn't believe he lost. So, Trump, in his petulance, probably said, grab those three boxes. I still ought to be the president anyway. Put them in that, put them in that truck. Let's go. You know, I mean, nobody would be surprised if that's the case. I mean, the most ardent Trump supporter would have to agree. Yeah, that's, that's pr- pretty likely. You know, tr- Trump would say verbally to the moving company, you know, I didn't lose this thing. You know that. <laughs> um, grab those three boxes that have classified on it, put it in the truck. But what's the mover going to do? If, if a sitting president says, or a former president for that matter, says those three boxes are mine, put them in the truck, let's roll. I mean, the Trump lawyers are there, but do you really believe the Trump lawyers are going to tell Trump what to, to do or not? So nothing about that surprises me. And I think Trump committed a felony. But no less a felony than Biden, no less a felony a felony than um than, than Clinton, and now no less a felony than, than Mike Pence. We'll see where where it goes, but I would love to see Mike Pence today today reach out to kevin mccarthy and say get me an audience i mean i don't want my name lumped in with trump biden and clinton i mean i'm not that i, I know i'm polling at six percent in a republican primary but i've done <laughs> trying to get seven yeah I've, 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 well i mean I, I just think he's doing i think he believes that his reputation is at risk and he's not the kind of guy that, that wants his reputation to be you know diminished and and i you know the, the way to clean that up is to reach out to law enforcement, because I want to go through another Andy McCarthy story here in a second. The, the media is trying to argue that the biggest difference in Trump and Biden is Trump has been uncooperative and Biden has been totally, absolutely hmm. um, committed to, you know, um, working with law enforcement. transparent was well, I mean, the word the administration but, but likes the, to use. The media, as usual, isn't telling you the truth. The Biden camp has not been working with law enforcement. They have been forced to deal with law enforcement. And I'll walk through some of the um, A, B, C, D trans. Uh, I don't know. What, what are we trying to say here? The um, mm, It's not the transitioning from where they were to where they are, but but the, um, the timeline, yeah, yeah, the, the timeline, the, the series of events, the sequence that led to the disclosure, uh, the finding. And now uh, we hope the eventual investigation that I think will end up um, implicating the Bidens in uh, one of the biggest scandals of modern American politics. I really and truly believe that. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Wednesday morning. Do want to make mention when it comes to Mike Pence, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, President Biden. Um, Lindsey Graham says that he doesn't believe there's anything sinister in um, in Joe Biden's heart. He says, and I'll quote. Um, let me just say this. I've known President Biden for a long time. 
I'd be shocked if there's anything sinister here. It's almost like Lindsay is taunting his voters. I it thought really about is. it yesterday. I mean, it's almost like great you know, description. We, we, we've got to have tanks in Ukraine. He knows the America First voter in South Carolina does not want American assets heavily invested in Ukraine. He knows that. I mean, we can debate. I mean, we said yesterday or the day before, there's a very legitimate debate to be had about what is in America's best interest when it comes to Ukraine. That is a very philosophical and, and ideological debate. I think it's worthy of consideration. I, I've never said that I know the way I feel about Ukraine is right. I mean, how dare you challenge my opinion and, and my political proclivities when it comes to, to Ukraine? No, I mean, I think there's a very legitimate debate to be had about America's role or involvement in Ukraine. I share a different view than Lindsey, but I respect Lindsey's view. I think he has valid points to be made, but 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 Lindsey's toning his voters, and and I don't understand the motivation there. I was texting with Kahaley a little bit yesterday about that, and, you know, I, I just don't get it. I mean, I really don't get it, and they're going to be together Saturday. Trump and Graham will be together Saturday. I predict. I don't know this. I mean, I'm imagining that the two biggest political figures in South Carolina on Team Trump will be Henry and Lindsey. I don't know that to be true, but but I would imagine that the governor and U.S. senator will both be on Team Trump when Trump comes to South Carolina Saturday to make, you know, kind of a formal announcement that I'm back and we're going to be in business. And, um, you know, these are the people that are going to be on my steering committee. Uh, my statewide co-chairs will be, you know, um, Governor McMaster. And, but, but when Lindsey says these things, um, and this is what, a few days after the one, two, three, the fourth trove of documents have been discovered. And, uh, and, and when Lindsey says, I've known President Biden for a long time. Okay. Um, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Okay. But, but he, he doesn't stop there. He says, I'd be shocked if there's anything sinister here. Well, the majority of Republicans believe and have believed for a long time that there's absolutely something sinister here. The majority of Republican primary voters in South Carolina believe that there's something sinister here. So why does Lindsey say that sentence? It just doesn't make any sense to me unless he's, you know, kind of um, intentionally taunting some of his voting, some of his voting audience. I just don't understand it. I get I've known President Biden for a long time. That's acceptable. You know, I hope we can get to the bottom of whatever there is uh, in this episode. I, I get that. That's fair. Um, but when he says, he says exactly what most of us don't believe. The majority of us believe that there is something sinister with Joe, Jim, Jill, Hunter Biden. We, we believe that he's transacted in, in selling whatever it is he has a value to foreign countries. I mean, why else would Hunter Biden be compensated millions and millions and millions of dollars? I mean, it does appear to be sinister, but, but Lindsay has to go out of his way to say, I'd be shocked if there's anything sinister here. That, it, it, that's just, I mean, that, that's just unnecessary. Can you figure out any reason a politician would do that? Or I specifically don't. I mean, Lindsay that, would no, do that? No, I mean, it, well, there are times that, that you get, I mean, if you're, if you're, I guess he Senate, believes it. Well, I mean, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Lindsay's smart. I mean, guys, don't, don't underestimate Lindsay's intellect. I mean, Lindsay is a smart, smart man, and he's very capable of understanding the political landscape. I mean, he's a survivor. I mean, how many people, I mean, Lindsay would be a little bit like Joe Manchin. I mean, we ask ourselves, how in the world does Joe Manchin stay in office in West Virginia? How can a Democrat win a Trump plus 30 state? 
Well, don't you think people in other states around the country are going, how can Lindsey Graham still be elected in South Carolina? How can that be the case? I mean, we're, we're good about, you know, Cinnamon, Arizona, and Manchester, West Virginia, Tester, and how can Montana elect a Democrat? That doesn't make any sense, Freehold. That's where you're headed. Uh, you'll be asked that question when you get there. Well, he looks like a cowboy and a rancher, I guess, but he's got a D beside his name. Well, I mean, we ask these questions about Manchester, West Virginia, Tester, and Montana, but, but introspectively, we should really say, how does um, someone as complicated politically as Lindsey win in one of the reddest states in all of America? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But when he says, I'd be shocked if there's anything sinister, that there's a certain taunt to that. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, Lindsey was part of that 19 that voted the omnibus bill in, knowing it was going to breach the federal debt limit and just tying the Republican hands. You know, South Carolina's got a problem. You take a pile of poop and put a Republican name on it, and, and they'll vote for it. It's amazing to me. I don't even have a... A Republican representative in my little town of Hartsville because our district doesn't even run a Republican. So it's either vote for the Democrat or don't vote at all. The, the, the thing that amazes me about Lindsey is, and all of these guys, I mean, they're all covering for Joe Biden and they're selling us down the street. You know, the, the amount of money this government is spending is unreal. And spending against the American people, just two organizations, NGOs, the Vera Institute of Justice and the Arcadia Center for Justice, have gotten over a billion dollars in the last two years to fight deportation of immigrants, to promote defunding of the police, you know, to empty out the prisons. To this justice, uh, equal justice, I don't equity justice or whatever it is, but they're taking our taxpayer dollars and funding these people to fight against the rule of law. And Lindsay is fine with that. And we're sending all this money to Ukraine. Now, when time to come, Zelensky said last night or whatever his name is, Oh, you're going to get rich rebuilding Ukraine. Well, guess who's at the trough? BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, you know, all these. It's a self-licking lollipop they've got going on, and they're sticking it right to us. And like I say, you know, we have the ultimate power. Just everybody claim my independence and watch their eyes blow out of the sockets. But they're going to have to raise the debt limit because they've already... You know, with that 1.7 blew up the debt ceiling, but they could just go back to 2018 budgets and we'd have a surplus. You know, they keep talking about the tax cuts costing $1.5 trillion. Well, when they passed those tax cuts, income to the government was $3.3 trillion. Last year it was 4.9. So I think. That 10-year tax plan has already paid for itself because last time I checked, 4.9 is more than 3.3, but yet they spend 6.2.
So it will never be enough. I say put pass a ballot budget amendment and, you know, if, if you want to shut the government down, shut it down. Thank no. you, Joe. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I look back, uh, I think, day before yesterday, uh, in the in the Bush-Trump administrations, the, the deficit went up $12.7 trillion. In the Biden-Obama administrations, the the money went up about $13.1 trillion. Bush had two terms. Trump had one. Biden had two terms. Excuse me, Obama had two terms. Biden is about halfway through a term. So we're, you know, we're talking apples and apples. Not exactly. You still got a couple of years to go, and that number will probably go to, what, 14, 5, 15 trillion. But, but what I'm saying is the Bush tax cuts were not offset by spending cuts. I mean, when, when you cut taxes, um, you know, despite what a lot of Republicans argue, revenue does not go up. I mean, I, Republicans have argued that forever. You know, if you cut taxes, liberate the private sector, revenues go through the roof. I mean, there's some, it's a little bit like everything in life, that there's a little bit of truth and, and, and fallacy in everything. And when you say, you know, trickle down or supply side does this but not that. I mean, it's complicated. Supply side works in some ways. Um, trickle down works in some ways. But but it's, it's not exactly what the Democrats say, and it's not exactly what the Republicans say. But when the Bush tax cuts went into place, and they, they kind of corresponded with the Medicare, what, Part D? Uh, the Medicare prescription benefit card. I mean, there was enormous expense associated with that. So, um, so despite the Republican Party professing to be the party of fiscal sanity, it hadn't done a much better job than the Democrats at controlling the debt and deficit. Um, eight years of Bush, four years of Trump, $12.7 trillion added to the federal debt. Eight years of Obama, uh, a little better than two years of Biden, and it's $13.1 trillion. So, so it'll be a couple of trillion dollars more by the time we um, we get to the end of Biden's first term. And then we are talking apples and apples. But it seems to me, guys, and I don't know why, but it seems to me that some of the serious people are beginning to talk more and more and more about the debt. Here's an interesting point. We're in our seventh month of quantitative tightening. Remember, quantitative easing was the norm. Uh, we, we pump liquidity into the economy. Uh, we bought bonds and corporate assets, and the Fed's balance sheet was nearly $10 trillion at one point in time. Um, we're, in a, we're in our seventh month of quantitative tightening. I mean, it's accelerated over time, and I could really get in the weeds on this because I read a lot about it over the weekend. But in the mode of quantitative tightening, what has the economy done? What has the market done? I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you had, you know, if you bought the S&P two years ago, it's worth less today than it was when you bought the S&P 500. And I just wonder, I mean, I don't know this. I'm not an economist. I'm not versed as, as I probably need to be to offer. And I'm certainly not offering uh, personal financial information or advice. But, but th- th- there's a pretty good correlation when, when you look at the, the, the Fed injecting liquidity into the economy, macroeconomic stimulus. It, it, it inflates the value of assets. I mean, it just does. Not only does it increase inflationary pressures, which does increase, you know, the uh, the price of assets. And and I think once we started realizing the Fed and Jerome Powell that we've got to begin not just raising interest rates, but we've got to do some quantitative tightening to take some of the liquidity out of the economy. And we're seeing what's happened to the markets. We're seeing what's happening to the economy. Um, some of these major tech companies are laying off tens of thousands of people 
Some of the big um, retailers are starting to lay off, you know, thousands and thousands of people. We're, we're seeing a kind of a course correction in the overall economy, whether it's asset prices or, and I'm talking about, you know, the marketplace, and I'm talking about Dow Jones, NASDAQ, S&P, Russell Index. And then you look at that correlation with quantitative tightening. It's a little bit spooky how dependent this economy has become on fiat currency. I mean, really and truly, guys, I'm not a, I'm not an economist. I'm G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. But, but I put a key in a door all of my adult life and, and figured out a way to keep my head above water. Uh, I'm no dummy there. I'm, I'm not as versed scholarly as a lot of people are. But, but I'll assure you, this economy has become almost addicted to the, um, to the, to the premise of, you know, um, macroeconomic stimulus and, and almost and the dependent. Fed, the Fed has too much power. Well, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable it's how much power they have. And I'll tell you, if you go wow. back and look and you track the quantitative easing with the market, the quantitative easing in asset prices and quantitative tightening. And, and uh, you know, I mean, truth be known, Joe knows this. Um, some other callers, who's Larry. Larry's a guy who studies and reads on this stuff. I mean, you know the effect. It's going to have, if we are man and woman enough to do what needs to be done, and that is to significantly restrain liquidity, capital, fiat currency. I mean, it's made up money is what it is. I mean, the Fed, here's what, here's the deal. You ready? And I'll take a break. Counterfeiting money has been good for asset appreciation. And, and it's sooner or later, you got to stop counterfeiting money. And there's a correction that happens once you're called to the carpet and somebody says, hey, we can't counterfeit money any longer. We got we got to get back to the real world, and I just think there is a. I mean, I really believe this. You know what we went through in two thousand eight? Mm-hmm. I think that's um as Jackie Gleason and Sheriff Buford T. Justice would say, that's baby crap when it comes side of what I think we're going to have to deal with eventually at some point in time what? when we realize you know fiat currency is counterfeiting money and we can't do that as a preeminent superpower. Remember how bad two thousand eight? Uh, yeah, was. of course I do. I wasn't a smoking man, but. I yearned for cigarettes during that period <laughs> of time. Something to ease the nerves. Take a break. Back in a minute. The secret is not knowing what you're talking about. The secret is making sure your audience is less informed than you are. Oh, I mean, It's okay. never about knowing what you're talking about. I mean, when you do this, it's a little about being a member of Congress. I mean, I'll cut members of Congress a little bit of slack. You ready? Mm-hmm. So someone comes to see you as a member of Congress about their kid who has cystic fibrosis and, you know, um, research funding is going to be cut at some of the um, medical universities around the country, and that's going to directly impact some of the um, some of the clinical trials of which they're trying to find a cure for their kid. Um, the next moment someone walks in who is dealing with a, a land right issue in Montana or Wyoming or somewhere out there, um, on the range and the ranching after they leave, somebody comes in, in the bridge construction industry about, you know, some, um, some way they've come up with to save the United States government, a lot of money. I mean, you've, you've got to be able to digest, consume, understand to some degree nuggets of that information. I mean, you got staff and, but, but think about the, the complexities of who comes to see you. I mean, if somebody comes to see Rev during the day, it's normally about a radio station not working right or an advertiser who didn't hear his ad play when it was supposed to play. It, it's radio-centric. Mm-hmm. If, you're a, if you're a politician, it's a lot of different things from a lot of different places. That family who's concerned about research funding being cut at a medical university don't care much at all about that bridge design that this engineering company has come up with that believes, you see what I mean, we all have these unique interests. 
and and we petition our government. We go to see our Congress member, and um, and we request certain things. Um, so so it's not necessarily about who knows the most. Um, some of it's delegation. Can I delegate this to somebody who knows a lot more um, than I know? Can I find someone in my sphere who um, understands this issue much better, much better than I do? The successful politicians in America today cultivate and maintain relationships. I mean, that those are the highly successful uh, politicos, those who understand that ultimately every two, four, or six years, they're held accountable to the voter, but but they've got a job to do, and that job is not about protocol as much as it is who to call. Uh, I've said that, you know, a hundred times. Speaking of, you know, politicians, one of the most interesting figures right now as we speak in America is Nikki Haley. Nikki is beginning to um, suggest strongly that she's going to be the second candidate to enter the Republican primary um, challenging Donald Trump. That's odd. Um, it's odd because Nikki has said that if Trump runs, I won't. But recently she has said, but things change. Times change. Um, that is a reasonable explanation. I mean, I don't know that Nikki ever took a, a loyalty oath to President Trump that um, this office or this nominating process belongs to you until you decide otherwise. I hope she didn't do that. I hope no candidate's foolish enough to do that. I mean, loyalty's important, but you can't guarantee somebody the, you know, the playing field to be swept clean just because you get in the race. Some of the Trump supporters believe he's deserving of that. I don't. And I think Trump's better if we have a, um, a contested primary. I don't think Nikki can win, but she has won um, a talking point that I think is very intriguing, and that is he's 80 and I'm 50. I think Nikki's 51 or two years old. I don't know exactly. I think she's a, she's several years younger than I am because when we ran, um, I just remember her being several years younger uh, than I am. I think she's in her early 50s, if I'm not mistaken. So she'll be in her early 50s when she, um, when she runs for president. But she has, um, she has found some people um, that she's employed. Uh, Nikki's got a, a super PAC called Stand for America, Stand for America, Inc., or a PAC, whatever. And I think they raised uh, $15 million in the, uh, in the 2022 oh. election cycle. I think they spent the majority of it. Sheldon Adelson's husband, excuse me, wife, is one of her big, Miriam, I think is her name, is one of her uh, big contributors. Paul Singer, who is a hedge fund manager um, at Davos, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on this, somebody will, um, the CEO of Morgan Stanley predicted that Nikki Haley would be the, uh, the Republican nominee. Now, that's Davos. Davos is not representative <laughs> of the rank-and-file Republican primary voter, but it made news when the Morgan Stanley CEO said that he felt Nikki Haley would be uh, the most likely candidate to defeat Donald Trump in a primary. Well, I mean, that, that makes me nervous. When the crowd at Davos finds Nikki acceptable, I find her not quite acceptable. Yeah, well, what's up with that? But the well, I mean, she's. What? I think Nikki's tried, and I think this is this will eventually be the reason she doesn't get elected. N Nikki puts a lot of checks in a lot of boxes. I mean, she's diverse. She's a good politician. She's ambitious. Um, she's from a a state that is essential to kind of catapulting you. Um, to the next tier of candidates in a in a primary system, but but Nikki has made, in my opinion, and, and good Lord, who am I tell Nikki Haley? I mean, we got sworn at the same time. She's talking about running for president. I'm hosting a radio show. Um, I like where I am. I assume she likes 
um, where she is. But but Nikki from day one tried to balance political ambition, establishment orientation, and the America First movement, and that's hard to do. I think you've got to declare loyalty to one or the other. I think J.D. Vance is more palatable because J.D. Vance appeared to not try to be everything to everybody. J.D. Vance came clean and said, I was wrong about Donald Trump. I mean, he made it just a clear break. You know, when people challenged J.D. Vance about what he said about Trump, J.D. Vance didn't complicate it by, by, by saying anything other than, I was wrong. Yeah, when Trump announced he was running, I found him to be a blowhard and narcissistic and ill-fitted and, and, and not up for the job. But I was wrong. I think you cleaned that up quickly. And now J.D. Vance is a uh, kind of a I'm a perceived. I don't know if he is or not. Who knows what a person's real intent is? He's a perceived loyalist to the America First movement. And I think J.D. Vance is the kind of person that could take the baton from a Trump and go the next leg of the race as we sustain a political movement. But I think Nikki tried to balance. Let me be polite here. I think Governor Haley. I mean, I want to be respectful. I think Governor Haley tried to balance, you know, her um her political ambitions, her elitist loyalties, because that's how you get rich. You don't get rich being an America firster. You get wealthy when the Morgan Stanley CEO says, you know, that there's a lot to see here. There's a reason to be encouraged about this lady being the standard bearer moving forward uh, for the Republican Party. Um, can Nikki create the contrast between herself and Trump? Probably. She's younger. She's more um, photogenic. Dynamic's a word. I was about to say she's more dynamic. Nikki's a good orator. I mean, she's on point. She message is very succinctly. I mean, I remember when I, when we did our thing together. In other words, she was running and I was running. I was far more random. Nikki's speeches lasted seven minutes and 13 seconds. If you're in Beaufort, if you're in York, if you're in, it didn't matter. I mean, it didn't matter where you were. Very, very on point and disciplined. Very guarded. I mean, I would have been far different than that. I mean, I kind of made it up as I went. And there's a certain appreciation the voters have for authenticity. It doesn't appear that you've rehearsed this in front of a mirror six or eight times, but you make mistakes. What when you don't, you know, dedicate yourself to the regime or the repetitive nature of giving a speech a certain way at a certain time to a certain audience, uh, expecting a certain, you know, response. And I think discipline is a big deal. And I think Nikki is a focused and disciplined and ambitious politician. Can she win? No. I, I just don't think she can win. I can't see a scenario that Trump gets less than a third of the Republican primary vote. I don't care how bad they beat the hell out of him. There's a third of you out there who call yourself Republican primary voters who would walk over charred glass and burning embers to vote for him again. You think he's earned that. I get it. I mean, I think he's earned some of that, but it's not 50%. But who else gets to 33% in a Republican primary? The only name I can come up with is Ron DeSantis. I don't know that I'm right because a lot can happen in a year, a year and a half. Uh, Trump proved that. You know, Trump went from 0% to, you know, the nomination. So who knows what the, what the future holds, but it looks to me like Trump has about a third of the vote on lockdown. He has a chance to get another 15, 16, 17%. That's a big plurality. And, and a crowded field with a Pompeo and a Nikki Haley and maybe a Ron De I mean, DeSantis is the wild card. I mean, DeSantis is the wild card. And I'll ask you this. 
if DeSantis is the convergence point of too much Trump and not enough Trump and just the right amount of Trump, and I think the American public have settled, okay, this guy reminds me of Trump just enough. I don't want Trump again, but but I kind of like this guy because he has some of the characteristics and attributes of a Donald Trump. Um, Nikki's not going to have much of that. I mean, she's going to try to be the establishment. You know, let's return politics to sanity. And and the, the Davos crowd wants that. I mean, the Davos crowd wants business to get back as usual. The voters in the Republican primary just don't. So when the Morgan Stanley CEO says, Nikki Haley, I think you'd be a good president. If I'm Nikki Haley, you know what I tell the Morgan Stanley CEO? Keep that to yourself. <laughs> yeah. but, but by the way, uh, here's my address. Send that check. Yeah, don't, don't say anything to anybody about me being a good candidate. Um, the, the the Republican primary <laughs> voter point. probably doesn't think very much of the, the Morgan Stanley CEO. Let's go to the phone. It's Breeze. Good morning. Hey, what's up, guys? Kid, you know, I was thinking after you were talking about the electric cars, I said, um, first of all, does anybody really think that you were saying yesterday that, that we're being out, out of out cap yeah, yeah that China's beating us in capitalism. Well, do you really think, or anybody really think that China, Russia, or any of those countries like them, are going to switch to electric vehicles for their citizens? No. Now, do you really think that the U.S. I mean, you got um, nuclear powered um, nuclear powered ships, and they and they make perfect sense. They make better sense than the diesel ones. But are you going to have? What are you going to run tanks on electricity? Has anybody ever seen what happens when, a, when a, one of these battery cars catch fire? I mean, do you think that, that, that the Humvees are going to be electric Humvees that weigh an extra thousand pounds? You know, and when they get hit, they explode. I mean, you can't carry on a serious conversation with these people. But that's not really another thing, reason I called. I was watching Tucker and some of his stuff, and already you see where the Republicans are betraying their voters. Already they're doing that. And I, I just wonder at what point will the American citizens start coming together and realize that the Democrat politicians and the Republican politicians, they're both our enemy. They are not doing anything to help your average Democrat voter or your average Republican voter. And by that, I mean just stay out of our daggone way. Everything that both parties are doing and the government is doing is hurting all of us. I don't understand why we can't see that together. You know, just like you were speaking this morning about keep printing this fiat money. Well, it doesn't matter if I have a business and I vote Republican and the people next to me have a business and they vote Democrat if we're both getting destroyed by fiat currency, if we're both being destroyed by the Fed, if the, if the stock market is phony, if everything they're doing is a bunch of bullcrap and none of them have an ounce of morals or character, don't, why can't the American public see together that it's not, they're so partisan. Well, it's okay like your boy Jeff. Well, it's okay if, uh, you know, you know, if my guy's doing bad, that's okay. If your guy's doing bad, that's bad. But the truth of the matter is both guys are doing bad. So if you're a Democrat or Republican, you need to open your eyes and realize that both parties are not our friends. And I don't know how the heck to get it through people's heads, but they are. Nobody working in Washington right now is our friend. I don't even know who I would consider one moral, ethical, decent person in Washington right now. 
You know, the answer, thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. The answer, I got two numbers written down this morning. I actually had them yesterday. We didn't talk about them. 77 and 44. We did touch on it a little bit with the Chicago song um, or the reference. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, 77% of Americans believe that Donald Trump acted inappropriately in mishandling classified information. 64% of Americans believe that Joe Biden acted inappropriately handling classified information. They both handled they both mishandled classified information. If we were an enlightened public, if we were an engaged public, if we were, dare I say, a smart enough public, that number would be 100%. I mean, there's no denying. I mean, we can do, talk about degrees of severity and who did worse than whom, but but the truth is, it's easy to discern that. I mean, it's, you know, why did Trump do it? Okay, that's 64%. Why did Biden do it? 77%. But when you ask the, the, the general public of the United States, do they believe the president acted inappropriately in mishandling classified information, you've answered the question by asking the question. Do you believe the president acted inappropriately by mishandling classified information? Well, mishandling classified information is inappropriate. So that answer has to be 100%. But it's only 77 and 64%. And the reason it's 77%, the media steers, um, you know, the polling sample one way or another. Therefore, more Americans believe that Trump acted inappropriately, but the question answers itself. That's how unserious we, the people, have become. And I look at the number and I scratch my head. How can 36% of Americans not believe that Joe Biden acted inappropriately? Because you've been conditioned to conform. And he's a Democrat. And the media has told you that Democrats aren't as bad as Republicans. So instead of you thinking a little bit on your own, you kind of take that at face value and you turn it back to Seinfeld and you, and you grab another beer and you do another whatever it is you do. Uh, you, you draw on your cigarette or your marijuana or whatever and you go back to being happy and hoping the government will just figure it out one day. No, this is a government of the people. And, and you know, Dr. Bolt was kind of interesting yesterday when we began debating the Constitution um, and it said, we the people. Dr. Bolt said a lot of the founders bought it up and threw it in the trash. They wanted to we the states. Uh, but because the states are organisms that within, so it's very interesting. I'd never heard that story. But, but the states, I've never heard that story. And I've I read a lot about the Constitution. And I knew a lot about, you know, who was um, responsible and who they tried to keep away. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that they try to keep Adams away. But I think they tried intentionally to keep Jefferson away. So two of the great thinkers of our political world or our, our country's existence were, were not a part of the Constitution, Adams and Jefferson. I mean, if you, ask the, if you ask any scholar in America today, who are the two great thinkers of early America, they would, they would argue, I mean, it'd be three. It'd be Hamilton, Jefferson, and Adams. I mean, Madison would have been a notch behind that, but he would have been up there. Franklin was a very influential founding father. But when you talk about political theorists in general, you're talking about Adams, Jefferson, and Hamilton. Um, you know, Hamilton to me was wrong, but but we've ended up where Hamilton wanted us to end up. Big government, you know, kind of kind of a um, an organism that lives within otherworldly organisms, transacting commerce and business and and ideas and notions and uh, politics in general. Um, you know, Jefferson won the battle. I think he eventually lost lost the war. But but Breeze is talking about you know they're not your friend. I would ask this, are you even your friend when it comes to political seriousness or understanding? What do you do as a people to better understand what's happening in Washington? 
I mean, if you're if you're responsible to the voter and you know the voter doesn't pay attention, why would you do what you're supposed to? What what is the motivation to be held responsible? I mean, if Lindsey Graham feels comfortable basically toning his his voters by voting for an omnibus bill and 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 voting for another bill, I think he and the other senators of the infrastructure bill. So you've got a guy who represents the Republican brand in one of the most conservative states in America. Um, and, and he gets away with that. How does Lindsey get away with that? I mean, I, you know, I've defended Lindsey a lot when you folks wouldn't, but I don't defend him on working with the Democrats on the infrastructure bill. And I certainly think the omnibus bill was a big mistake and doesn't reflect in any way, shape or form, the values of the Republican primary voters. And then yesterday, for some reason, Lindsey chooses to say that it would, I, I would be shocked if Joe Biden did anything sinister. How many of you believe that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden are part of a crime family? The majority of you. I do. I mean, I suspect very heavily that Joe Biden is a, uh, you know, an agent in some way, shape or form. And by that, I mean, he's made money transacting in American government. He's made a lot of money transacting or, or trafficking in, you know, government information, government secrets. Um, you know, is he treasonous? Well, he wants the definition of treason. But, but but Joe Biden got elected. Lindsey Graham got elected. Lindsey Graham will probably get elected again, despite the outcry from the majority of our listeners, because we just aren't very serious. And I go back to Breeze's point. If you are a member of Congress, why would you honor the wishes and will of your voters if your voters aren't paying much attention to what you do anyway? 843 Back in a few. Man, I got teachers at I got teachers at Hannah Pamplico that would say I never imagined his name would be associated <laughs> remotely close to the word valedictorian. Um, goody, goody. Um, I was always well, the you kid could say that, any word. I was always the goddess council say you could do so much better if only you tried. You could do so much better if only you put forth effort. Ken doesn't apply himself. Man, there, there you go. You've heard those speeches. <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, over and About over me. and over again. So you were talking about Jim Jordan, and I think a lot of us agree he is, you know, the right guy probably at this time with his aggressive style to go after some of these things that we want to go after and get to the bottom of some of these things. Reminds me a little bit, and, and correct me if you, if you think I'm right or wrong here, but Trey Gowdy a few years ago when he was in Congress and sitting on some of these committees, we kind of expected him to be, because he had some of those same traits. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. Somebody texted me a second ago. It's funny you say that because someone texts me and says, wasn't Trey Gowdy kind of our Jim Jordan? Yeah. I mean, Trey had some of the same characteristics. He had a um, a way of cross-examining that is similar to Jordan. He was not afraid to be aggressive and matter of fact and in your face. Um, but Trey probably didn't like arguing as much as Jim Jordan. I mean, there's a bent gene in some of us that enjoy confrontation and conflict. How many people out of 100 truly enjoy conflict and confrontation? One, maybe two. I mean, 97 or 98 are going to avoid conflict and, and confrontation. Um, Jim Jordan is a guy, I mean, he's one of the rare birds. He's smart, he, he's, he's diligent, and I think he likes it. I think Trey Gowdy is smart, diligent, and capable. I just don't know that Trey liked it as much as Jordan appears to. Now, now once again, um, I don't know Jim Jordan. I know Trey a little bit. Trey ran for Congress against Bob Inglis when I ran for lieutenant governor. And um, I'm thinking about that class. You know, if there's a class of 2010, you got Tim Scott who ran. You've got Trey Gowdy who ran. Nikki Haley who ran. Mick Mulvaney 
who ran. I mean, it's it's quite a um. I mean, it's quite a group of people who ran um, for office. Tom Rice ran for Congress during that period of time. Uh, the Republican Party was very much not in turmoil, but in transition, replacing some of the old guard with some of these um some of these new faces. And um, some endured, and some moved on to other things. And <laughs> look, at, um, look at the diversity of where all the. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're in that group, obviously. I mean, you're on the radio, built the radio uh, dynasty. Uh, yeah, we're okay. moguls. We're media <laughs> but, but, moguls. You know, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, you know, Trey Gowdy, who's been a congressman, who's now, I mean, he's a pundit and doing a lot of stuff with Fox News. Nikki Haley's considering running for president. I mean, that's a... Well, you left out Mulvaney. I mean, yeah, Mulvaney, Mulvaney worked right. at the... I mean, he was Bush, uh, Trump's chief, chief of staff. staff. Yeah, I mean, right. so so there were quite a... Um, I mean, South Carolina made a big splash in that age, in that era of, uh, of politics, and I'm proud to have been a part of it. I mean, I ended up in a very different place. But, uh, but Trey found out Washington wasn't much for him, so um, so he came back home and is doing his thing, um, you know, private sector and doing some things with um, Fox News as a pundit and writing books and, and all these other good things. I think if you go to work at Fox, you got to write a book. I think it's part of your deal. You I mean, know, you write the book, they'll market. Well, I mean, it may be a book or two or three. I mean, even the weather lady at Fox is writing um, I, I think multiple books. All the personalities on Fox must have something in their contract as part of their deal as they're allowed to do the outside endeavor and then promote it on the channel. And I, I, I would imagine, yeah, and that's good Seems for that business. Way. That's sure. good for their business and, and Fox News as well. Uh, let's go to the phone. Morris in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Morris. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, uh, Morris. How are you? I don't- I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I don't think that Trump broke the law regarding classified documents, and please let me get my two cents worth in there. Uh, first point is that the President of the United States has the ultimate classification authority, so the buck stops with him. This means that he can declassify anything he wants to declassify. That was one of the first things that I learned when I was in uh, the Navy A school. Trump was president when he left the White House. I don't think that there's any clear guidance about how a president has to declassify anything. But Cash Patel indicated that Trump had a staff meeting right before he left the White House, and he told the staff that the documents that he was taking to Florida were declassified. If so, that should have been enough. But if not, it sounds to me like his staff probably let him down. Now, I'll grant that it would have been a lot better if he'd simply signed a declassification letter, but if he didn't, that still don't change the fact that he had the right as president to declassify anything that he wanted to declassify. Does he have the responsibility to memorialize the fact that he declassified? I mean, I'll I'll, I'll give you that. The president, on his own volition, at any time, can declassify. But does he have a responsibility to memorialize the fact that he dis- declassified, you know, whatever the documents are? Well, you're saying that he broke the law, and I'm contending that he didn't break the law, and that uh, as commander-in-chief, okay, he may have had the responsibility. I don't know. Uh, probably sooner or later all of that will come to the surface. Uh, if he had, if he signed a declassification letter, he would probably go ahead and uh, be better off if he would just make it public, just just go ahead and put it out there. If he didn't, well, I, I, I don't know about that. But let me let me get to my second point. Okay. Uh, Joe Biden was the vice president, and as vice president, he was limited in what he could declassify. The sensitive documents that he took as vice president or as senator were illegal for him to have in his position, so he definitely broke the law if that was the case. 
But let me throw another kink into the mix. Obama could easily bail him out by simply saying that he declassified those documents that Biden has. Well, I wonder why he hasn't. But but that's neither here nor there. Third point. Uh, Trump's home in Florida has a skiff, which is a sensitive compartmented information facility. These facilities are as secure as you can get. When Trump was asked to make the skiff in his home more secure by adding a secure padlock, he did it. Biden's garage is not a skiff, far from it. Uh, SCI is carefully controlled, and in Biden's case, it wasn't controlled at all. And for what it's worth, I'm hearing that sensitive documents that uh, Obama and Bush has are not protected in skiffs. But we don't seem to hear that much about that. You made a lot of good points. we got a hard break. Top of the hour. We'll be back to comment on your comments in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. So um, Jeff Manasso gave us the great news yesterday that the electric car ain't all as cracked up to be. <laughs> so today, Jeff's going to give us great news on falling gas prices. Am I right, Jeff? No, I'm sorry, my friend. <laughs> not. Well, well, give us. Yeah, the, but I, I hate for you to be the bearer of bad news, but give us the bad what news. The heck? So the average price for a gallon of regular unleaded three forty eight per gallon, according to AAA. That's about forty cents more than we were paying just one month ago, and fifteen cents more than we were paying uh, a year ago. Uh, as the cost of oil increases to eighty bucks a barrel in amid higher demand, and what's typically uh, a low demand time of year. AAA noting that drivers are, are taking advantage of the milder weather in much of the country by fueling up and hitting the road, quote unquote. Um, up until last month, prices had been steadily falling since June, aside from a brief uptick in September and early October. AAA still projects that gas prices will fall in later February uh, due to a lull in demand before spring break. Now, when we talk to our buddy Patrick DeHaan over at Gas Buddy, uh, what he says is that the Arctic blast is limited refinery output, and, and China's economy reopening its driving demand uh, is part of the reason we're paying more. Uh, he added that the release from the nation's petroleum reserves are, are over, uh, especially with, uh, or at least there's going to be a fight uh, on, on Capitol Hill now with Republicans in charge of the Hill uh, or, or the House. Uh, and also, as we move toward spring, refineries are going to be starting to do maintenance here uh, in, in the weeks ahead, and there's a, the transition to summer gasoline. All of these ingredients are pushing up gas prices, according to Gas Buddy, uh, and, and he believes that four dollars a gallon is a possibility, but hopes it holds off until March or April. So, uh, looking ahead, he, he he hopes we don't see five bucks a gallon this summer. A little bit of a different angle from different, um, you know, oil experts. Um, I'll let you decide. Well, we just we appreciate all the glorious news yeah. you bring us every morning, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> thank much you. better now. Thank Thanks. you for the transportation you update. <laughs> you got it, guys. Thank you, uh, Jeff Manasso, Fox News. You know, we're we're talking about that's one thing that I can't make heads or tails of. Um, we talked earlier about macroeconomic stimulus, the fact that the Fed has taken about a hundred billion dollars a year off of its balance sheet. But that's fiat currency that creates macroeconomic, excuse me, it creates inflationary pressures. The oil doesn't make sense to me, Rev. I mean, it just honestly doesn't. Oil should be going down, except Saudi Arabia decided to curtail some of their production. We're the mercy of a cartel that doesn't care much for our existence or way or way and of China life. China demand is but, up, I mean, apparently. But, but the China demand, I mean, but, but Russia is supplying China with their oil. That's the unholy alliance that a lot of, here I go smart guy for a second, 
the the geopolitical adversary of China is not as not as prominent or prevalent if Russia doesn't agree to provide energy. So when Russia invades Ukraine and the majority of Europe say thank you but no thank you to you know the the, the Russian oil, they have this unholy alliance with China, and China will pay better than fair market price because it's a communist country and they don't care. The plot of their people mean very little to them. But but I go back to America's macroeconomic stimulus. We, we injected about $6.3 trillion. I mean, imagine this, guys. Uh, uh, three years ago, $6.3 trillion that exists today didn't exist then. The Fed basically counterfeits money and gets away with it. Well, they're quantitative tightening now. They're taking about $100 billion a year out of the economy that leads to asset depreciation. That's why housing markets are correcting. The, the, the intent of raising interest rates is kind of a, um, it's in conjunction with the, um, the decreasing of liquidity in the economy. And that should address some of the issue with oil. Except Saudi Arabia saw this coming and they curtailed production. It's supply and demand. It's always supply and demand. We can talk macroeconomic stimulus. We can talk you know, Yale and Harvard and Princeton and Dartmouth, nobody can outsmart supply and demand. Mm-hmm. No, but it's as simple, and, it's and, as simple as that. My takeaway from what Manasso just reported is that, you know, the supply and demand is going to hit everybody this summer if, well, the, if the gas goes to $5. Well, I mean, there's 340, 330 million people in America. It's 1.5 billion in China. I mean, China's still that animal that has decided to do what Gorbachev couldn't do, and that is merge capitalism and communism in some weird way. I mean, it's a communist nation, but they have Starbucks. You know, it's a communist right. nation, but they make a lot of money in some sectors of their economy. But but I go back to what we talked about earlier, the fact the Fed is taking the counterfeit money out of the economy that led to asset appreciation. And I'm talking about Wall Street. I'm talking about housing. I'm talking about everything that we um, consume in our daily lives. But oil is staying relatively high because China's demand and Saudi Arabia's production. That's why we need to take hold of our energy independence. I mean, that's always been something that concerns me. There are people far brighter than I that understand this far better than I, but they're motivated by something I don't understand. And I mean, it, 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 it's, it's malicious. I mean, it is. It's, um, it's, it's people gaming the system in a way that Morgan Stanley understands and Goldman understands, you and I, um, kind of scratch our heads and say, well, what are those people in Davos up to when they, when they <laughs> gather that world economic that world economic forum? Forgive me for um, that rant. We have with us, um, one of the things that we've always tried to do is give back to the community. Um, some of you folks have reached out to us and we've been able to get to you in a better way than others. But um, the Miracle League is something um, that, that means a lot to me personally because my sister was in a wheelchair and I saw my sister not be able to do certain things that all other kids could do. Along came the ADA, the American Disabilities Act. Um, I told the story. We couldn't get a ramp built. My dad called Strom Thurmond. Th- there were more concrete trucks at Hannah Pamplico School than you could shake <laughs> shake a stick at. And um, and then Strom called my dad and said, get them ramps built. Did he get all them ramps built? So, so it's, it's near and dear to me. Kevin Elliott has a kid who um, has certain challenges. And Kevin and I go way back in our glorious softball days. He's with us, Ronnie Pridgen, formerly of um, Florence County Parks and Recreation. He's a repeat offender to wake up Carolina 
and the infamous Jeb Mack is with us, and he doesn't have his guitar. He has his guitar uh, with us with us this morning. Uh, Ronnie, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Um, okay. You were you, you've been on the show uh, a lot of times talking about parks and recreation. You're not necessarily here to talk about that today. No, sir. But but the Miracle League and that field is a result of your hard work as a member of the Florence County Parks and Recreation. Uh, yes, sir. It was, uh, Ken, thank you for having us too. Uh, it was a dream of mine for about 20, 25 years, and, and I worked in other towns and d- just couldn't get the money together. And um, I think it was around 2014, we decided to break down and do a buddy ball game on the dirt infield. And, you know, it wasn't conducive for all wheelchairs and walkers and stuff. So, but anyway, we persevered. Uh, the first day there, I found uh, a deer in the headlight looking parent and um, knew he coached baseball. And I said, that's going to be my league president there. So you got to think those things out, you know, think on your feet. And uh, anyway, um, a marriage was born with Florence County Parks and Recreation and the Miracle League of Florence County's board. And um, now we're talking about adding a second field. So, uh, you know, it's grown to almost 200 participants, uh, 12 teams, and uh, really a great time. And if you ever have a bad day, just come out to one of our games. And when you leave, I promise you, you got your heart singing and realizing and be thankful to God for for what you, he's given you. And, Kevin, you've always enjoyed baseball. I mean, you and I played a lot of slow-pitch softball, more against one another than than with one <laughs> yeah. another. But, um, I mean, we were as good as we were because we were we, we didn't have certain challenges. Your kid has a certain challenge. My sister had a certain challenge. Um, it's easy to work on behalf of your kid. But you're not just working for your kid. You're working for a lot of other kids who have unique situations and circumstances. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's – my kid, he, you know, he's had epilepsy since he was two months old, had brain surgeries and left with partial paralysis on one side. So, you know, it was always my dream to be able to coach my kid one day and things never, you know, never worked out. And then when Ronnie came to us about the Miracle League, you know, we were, me and my wife, Vicky were all on board because we knew that was going to be our chance to be able to coach, coach our kid something that we wouldn't have been able to do and you know like I say we, i think we had like 170 players in spring last year and you know it's just amazing to get out there and watch watch them the smiles on their face and the parents they just sit back and enjoy it and because we like for them to have buddies on the field so the parents can sit in the stands and just enjoy it like you know like our parents yeah. did back when we played and it's just you know it's just amazing just amazing to come out and watch. Um, I don't know what I would do if we didn't have Miracle League now. Um, I wish we could play year round because I just I enjoy it so much. Well, and 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 that's the passion you hear in his voice is why this has been successful. But it doesn't happen without money. I, I had a buddy of mine. Reps heard me say this more. Uh, money's the answer. Now, what's the question? I mean, I, I, I kind of learned that learned exactly. that in politics. But, but, Ronnie, you were able to secure some funding, but, but a lot of businesses and individuals stepped up and made personal con- contributions to allow these. And it's not just kids. I mean, it's they're adult process. participants as well, but, but it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. We're always trying to raise more money to offer more opportunities to these people who have these unique um, circumstances and challenges. And you guys made a, kind of an oyster roast, one of your staple fundraisers. When is that and how can people find out more? It's this Saturday night uh, at uh, Eastern Carolina Agriculture Fairgrounds. Uh, you can go on Miracle League of Florence County's Facebook page, 
Uh, Jeb Mack's been pushing it real hard for us. Um, you know, we got, you know, spots on the community broadcasters, and uh, it's just, um, it, it is our our ticket. It's our biggest fundraiser, and uh, we can't go on without say, thanking the Bruce and Lee Foundation and, and Betty S. Campbell Foundation. They're the first two big givers we had. But, um, but yeah, the Oyster Roast does good for us, and uh, it's, it's a premier event. Great time to be. But last year we had snow, but we still did it. And we still had about 500 people there. So, good deal, good deal. So, 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 Jeb, I'm going to jump to you now. So, one Saturday night, I think Ronnie might have got me tickets some way, somehow, and I might have donated something you did to some that, uh, some, some tickets football game. But, um, so, so I didn't want to go. I'm getting old, man. I'm getting rusty. I like staying home. I don't want to go out anywhere. I, I'm convinced to go out. And Jeb starts playing Johnny Cash. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I'm, I'm glad I came now. So some of that here, some of that hippie stuff, I don't care much for. But he starts playing some Johnny Cash, and I'm all on board. Jeb, um, welcome and good morning. Thank you for having so, me. Man. So why has this become kind of a staple in your in, in your world? Well, it's the biggest uh, it's the biggest fundraiser that the band does, um, and it's, it's it's very well put together. But you were talking about how much it, stuff like this means to Kevin and to you. Uh, my uncle, I grew up. My uncle was Down syndrome. He's he's he passed away maybe four years ago now, maybe five. Um, it's hard to keep up with time when you're getting old, you know. I can but, relate. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, just seeing the struggles that he had, you know, and knowing how much this helps, um, not like you said, not just the kids, but also the adults, the, just the ones that need to get out and, and want to get out and do something. It's, it's, uh, it really uh, it's, it's like a, a light, a beacon, you know what I mean? Here's what I've always <laughs> found interesting, because I've seen it at the Dead Dog, Dead, Dead Dog Saloon in Merle's Inlet uh, more than one time. It's the array, the the, 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 the diversity of music. Um, yeah. I'm a big Springsteen fan. There's a moment in Springsteen's concerts when he takes requests, right. and he calls himself the greatest house band, E Street Band's the greatest house band ever. <laughs> That's what I like about Jeb. Jeb doesn't pigeonhole himself into one genre of one type of music. You know there's a diverse audience there. They want to hear diverse sorts of music. Um, what kind of led you down that road? Playing Johnny Cash one minute and then, you know, Guns N' Roses the next minute. Man, uh, well, I don't know I don't know how many people know this, but, like, when I started in music, uh, when I was 20 years old, uh, I forgot you had to go to class when I played basketball at Coker. And so I had, a, I had some downtime, you know, the year after that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I started off uh, writing hip hop songs. So I was really in the hip hop scene, and I got in with some really cool people, and I got to tour with Snoop Dogg and Bubba Sparks and some really cool people. But really, uh, creating a song that's something that you feel, uh, it led me to more of a country ish. So everything in between. When people ask us what we play, I always tell them anything from Johnny Cash to Eminem, because you never know what you're going to get. Plus, we have a horn section. Yeah, and. Uh, it, you know, you just got to mix in some of those horn songs, and then when you throw your originals in there, it's like country, country funk. You and, know what I mean? And and, and Ronnie, hmm. this is a party. I mean, Jeb's a band playing for a group of people there to have fun. I mean, ultimately, yep. the goal is to raise money so these 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 people with challenges can have opportunities that they wouldn't have. But but I know the the two of you, Ronnie and Kevin, you want these folks to come out and have a good time. Well, and that's true. And at our board meeting, I think Kevin can reiterate this when we start talking about the band and all, you know. We Jeb Mack was top of the list. He has a big following. So, you know, people from Marion Mullins, Dylan, all over, not just Florence, all over come. And we want all of the PD's money. We want everybody <laughs> That's right. to Miracle League in Florence County. Because <laughs> money's but the answer, he, and that was the question. And he, he was a big asset to start this, and, and it's, it's really taken off, and, and 
Kevin and I were talking out there a while ago. We're looking for the biggest crowd yet. Okay, how can we make sure everybody knows they're invited? Let's talk about when, where, how. Because I want Jeb to sign off playing some music here in just a second to give you a taste of what is to come Saturday night. But um, but but logistically, I mean, if there's a business, if there's a family, if there's a person that wants to contribute, be a part of this, Kevin, uh, Ronnie, how can they find out more? Um, they can go on our Facebook page. We've got all kind of information on there. We've got a site you can click on. You can buy tickets online. Or you can buy tickets at the door. We'll be at the Eastern Carolina Fairgrounds this Saturday. It'll be from 6 to 10 o'clock. And we just hope to see everyone out. And it's the only oyster roast that I'll say is better than my Carolina Clemson oyster roast. <laughs> the last home game every year in Gamecock Park, I do an oyster roast. Or my son does it. Yeah, I'm favored of the tub, but he calls it his oyster <laughs> roast. Y'all know, know how that goes. But, but I congratulate you. I applaud you. The three of you are very instrumental in allowing this to be to be successful jeb i don't have a request but um i would rather you be closer to cash and eminem j- just because <laughs> i was born late december back in 63 probably know that song that song that. as well so um so here's jeb mack with a taste of what is to come uh, if you want to hear more and support a very very worthy cause this saturday night at the fairgrounds tickets are available these guys have told you how you can find out more but i'll turn it over to um the leader of the band, Jeb Mack, and he'll um he'll kind of give you a taste of what you can hear more of this Saturday. Jeb, it's all yours. So I just want to segue this song real quick. So uh, we wrote the song a few weeks ago, and it's, it's a country song. Um, but I wanted to bring this song in because we live in a small rural town, and at some point people start talking about you, whether it's good or bad, right? So uh, I named this song People Talking People, and I figured you'd get a little kick out of it because okay. in the second verse, and I'll, I'll stop after the second chorus or whatever, we don't have to do the whole thing, but in the second verse, uh, I'll give a little shout out to the politicians. Okay. Right. Oh, good deal. Good deal. <laughs> it's called People Talking People. You can catch up on the latest on the prayer list at church. Or be a hot topic at the beauty shop if you don't get there first. Bartenders pour it out. Then by the next morning it's worse They'll be digging through your business Just to dish some dirt It's just people talking People build you up and knock you down What goes around comes and goes Then comes on back around They'll run you through the rumor mill Then they'll buy you drinks downtown From the bar stools to the steeples It's people talking people. They'll go on about the Rolling Stones and the diamonds in the rough. The politicians with their palms itching like they can't get enough. It's a who's who, who did what and who's out here hooking up. And when your ears start burning, you can bet that you're the subject of People talking, people build you up and knock you down. What goes around comes and goes and comes on back around. They'll run you through the rumor mill, then they'll buy you drinks downtown. From the bar stools to the steeples, it's people talking, people. <laughs> That's killer, man. That's, that 
it's really, really, really good. I, I will address the politician issue. You ready? Rez heard me say this. Politics taught me what other people think of me is none of my damn business. <laughs> and with that, we'll take a break. Thanks to the three of you. Um, this Saturday night, great. Children's, uh, excuse me, the Miracle League is having its fundraiser. Let's make it the biggest one they've ever had. Back in a minute. You know, I read these notes and I have these brainstorms and, I, and out of that comes a, I don't want to say radio magic. It's certainly not that, but it is content for radio shows. I'm reading about the next guest and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if Trump is the most important Republican in America today, and I think he probably still is, who's the second most important Republican in America today? Is it Ron DeSantis? Is it Jim Jordan? Is it Nikki Haley? I mean, I think there's a fair debate to be had about that. Um, the RNC chairperson will be a very consequential figure as the party moves forward, as divided as it might be, and some of the squabbly, I don't know if that's a word or not, squabbly, as some of these things lead to. And they're in the process now of picking their um, chairperson. It may be a woman. It may be a man. Executive Director of American Principles Project and a GOP strategist, Terry Schilling, is with us. Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Ken, Dave. Uh, can you handicap the field? I mean, it's not Rona McDaniel and Rona alone. We have a couple of other announced candidates. Uh, if Is the My Pillow guy running or not? Yeah, yeah, no. So there's three cans in the race right now. It's uh, Ronna uh, McDaniel, uh, Harmeet Dillon, uh, RNC committee woman from California, and Mike Lindell, uh, the My Pillow guy. And um, it, look, I think I've, I've talked to a lot of these RNC committee people. Um, I think that Ronna is the favorite. Um, they all like what she's done. They 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 view her as a good fundraiser and someone that's taking the party in the right direction. And I think that, and I agree with them on this. I, I endorsed Ronna just full disclosure a few weeks ago. And um, I think there's a sentiment that it's unfair to blame her for all the losses um, over the years, simply because, you know, there are other people at fault here, uh, like, like Mitch McConnell. Um, and, you know, there's just other bad actors. And Ron has built a good fundraising juggernaut. And, and that's one of the most important things. And frankly, I'm friends with Harmeet. She's amazing. Um, I think she'd make a great chair. But um, a lot of these RNC committee people are sticking with Ron, it sounds like. What do you say to the rank-and-file Republican who see underperforming in the last few cycles and we're keeping the same head coach? I mean, that's fair criticism. How do you respond to that? Absolutely. Look, uh, I think we have a lot going against us, right? And uh, just because the environment has been really toxic and, and uh difficult for us right we've got big tech colluding against us online censoring our posts censoring our reach to get our message out to voters you have the mainstream media that's just totally completely biased for the other side uh, you know we don't blame president trump for losing in 2018 2020 and 2022 and because if we're not going to blame him then i think it's unfair to blame rana um, you know, there are other factors at play for why we're losing. You know, the RNC is neutral when it comes to primaries and choosing the, the candidates. Mitch McConnell's not, right? There are Republican, establishment Republicans who play in these primaries and help influence them and help us select really bad candidates that help us lose because they're bad on the issues and they're not compelling candidates. So my argument would be Rana's raising a ton of money, which is the most important job for the RNC chair. And she's been one of the only people in the RNC that understands the importance of going on offense on these hot button cultural issues. And that's very important for winning elections in the future. Well, let, let me, let me disparage the trade for a second. I'm a former statewide office holder in South Carolina as a, as a Republican. My concern was always the cozy relationship between the donors and the consultants. 
In other words, how many dollars are actually making their way onto the battlefield? I always felt the Democrats did a good job of making sure every dollar donated was going to the fighters on the battlefield. The coziness of the consulting class and the donor class and the Republicans caused me grave concern. A- am I over the target or not? No, I think you're over the target. Look, the, the, all of the party committees, the NRCC, the NRSC, the RNC, the RGA, the, you know, all of these committees are so consultant heavy. And they have preferred vendors that they go with based on not on merit all the time, but a lot of times on connections and relationships and nepotism. Um, and that needs to change. Um, then, but that's, you know, that's been how it's been for way too long. But we do need to make changes to, um, to that system. But, you know, the other thing is that a lot of people aren't talking about is Ron has brought in over a million new donors to the RNC. And most of those are small-time donors um, who gave – 2.9 million times, I believe, last cycle. It, it, she's doing a good job, but yeah, there's there's still a lot more work to be done. No one can deny that. So how do we do that? Um, Terry, you would know better than I. I mean, I, I had a look inside the belly of the beast, so to speak, but you have a more um, consistent look inside the belly of that beast. And I'm not blaming anybody for it, but how do we stop being a party of donors and a party of and become a party of voters? It, that's That's a very awesome question. It really starts from the top. And the top is not the RNC chairperson. The, the RNC chair is, is – is, the RNC, we need to think of it as a vessel for the presidential candidate, right? The, the, the presidential candidate, the nominee and the president determine everything about the RNC, who they hire, what, what their policies are, who the chair is, right? If, the, if, if Trump came out and endorsed Harmeet or went against Rana, we would have Harmeet as the chair. So we have to make sure that President Trump is enacting changes uh, at the RNC or Ron DeSantis, whoever the nominee is, uh, that fixes this. It's all the top. And the top of the party is not the RNC chair. It's the presidential nominee. That's where it all stems from. Interesting. Last question. Do you expect whomever the RNC chairperson is to fight a little harder for fair treatments in some of the presidential debates? Yeah, and um, and actually, that's one thing that Ron has been good at is she made the decision to withdraw the RNC from the Committee for Presidential Debates because of how unfair they were. Um, and that's really important to do in order to change the system and to set up something new that's much more fair to our candidates. We have to be careful because these debates are they offer a really good opportunity for us to show the American people what's at stake and to expose our our Democrat opponents, you know, we're up against some of the most evil and stupid people in all of American history. And those debates offer a really good opportunity to expose that. Well explained. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Um, do we have a call before we go? Okay. We had a call. We don't have one now. Um, is Terry gone? Yep. Okay. I don't want to offend him. Um, can I, can I tell you the real story? What's here? You ready for the GI Joe with the Kung mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Terry's got a job to do. I mean, Ter- Terry's a player in that world of donor slash consultant. Um, here's the deal. The reason that Trump is not endorsing Harmeet is Rona agreed to allow the RNC to pay off a lot of the legal bills the Trump campaign or Trump um, presidency accumulated. In other words, Trump didn't want to pay the legal bills with his own money. He would rather the RNC pay the bills. So Rona figured out a way for to for the RNC to be responsible for paying the former president's bill. And as a result of that, that's the deal. You know, Trump stays out. Trump wants a change at the RNC. Trump likes the RNC heading in a different direction. 
but he doesn't like that as much as he does himself <laughs> and his money <laughs> his money so, so, so the reason because i've had a lot of people say well trump's the change agent why is he not involving or getting involved in the rnc battle well there's the lowdown once again trump has a lot of legal expenses uh, and, and, and paying lawyers and he didn't want to pay it with his own money he convinced the rnc to go along with paying the bill rona was a big advocate for yeah you know we need to take care of some of these responsibilities and the deal was if we do that will you at least stay out of this and and trump's kind of the 800 pound uh, maybe a 600 pound gorilla now but but he's still a gorilla i mean he still uh, carries a lot of force and weight in that M- my concern and complaint i mean it's always been the same and it's the it's the cozy relationship that donors have with consultants that they seem to be perfectly okay with a million-dollar contribution. I'm talking about extremely wealthy people making big, big donations in the name of the RNC. They seem to be okay with a little bit of that money making its way to the battlefield, the majority of that money being diverted to consulting firms or lobbying organizations or political action committees, whatever um, ingredient there is out there. And I, and I just think the Democrats do a much better job of uh, – you know, if you donate $20 to the DNC, the majority of that $20 is going to the battlefield. It's going to win an issue. Some of the abortion rights issues, some of the, um, you know, the, the transgender, some of the cultural activism that has become normalized by the political left is funded by and large by the DNC. A lot of the money is, is, is kind of generated, originated out of the DNC. And the RNC just does a, a lousy job of getting a high percentage. It's called overhead in business. I mean, if you're running a business, what is your overhead? And if your overhead's 10%, you're making money. If it's 40%, you probably aren't making much money. What are the margins? And I think when you look at the RNC as a business, it's not. But if you were to look at it as a business, the margins aren't high enough. And the margin would be the money actually going to the calls. If Dave Baker won the $100 million lottery and wanted to give a million to the RNC, um, and then Dave Baker says, hey, man, um, you know, I really want the majority of my money invested in debt. I mean, I want to make sure we understand clearly how important the issue of debt is. I heard this nut on the radio in South Carolina talking about fiat currency and counterfeiting money, and it scared me to death. And, and I, I want that million dollars to go to, you know, the debate about that. And the RNC would say, oh, some of that money will make its way there, but we got to pay these six consultants and these four lobbyists before any of that is allowed to take place. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Talking about who are the most prominent Republicans, Kevin McCarthy would have to be uh, among the most prominent Republicans being the new speaker. Um, Is he who he says he is or who is he who we're concerned that he may be? Don't have any idea. I know he did something yesterday emphatically addressing the media and some of the concerns some of us have about is McCarthy going to be combative enough um, to, to confront some of the challenges. You're talking about debates and moderators in debates. Here's McCarthy yesterday addressing the media about taking Swalwell and Schiff off of the Intelligence Committee. You also will be able to raise for your full house, taking off other Democrats, perhaps Representative Omar. But you have said that lying to us is something that means you should be removed from the Intelligence Committee. But why is it not a factor? Well, let me be very... He's got elected by his district. So, okay. Let, let me be very clear and respectful to you. 
You ask me a question. When I answer it, it's the answer to your question. You don't get to determine whether I answer your question or not, okay? In all respect. Thank you. No, no. Let's answer her question. You just raised a question. I'm going to be very clear with you. The Intel Committee is different. You know why? Because what happens in the Intel Committee, you don't know. What happens in the Intel Committee, although the secrets are going on in the world, other members of Congress don't know. What did Adam Schiff do as the chairman of the Intel Committee? What Adam Schiff did, use his power as a chairman and lie to the American public. Even the inspector general said it. When Devin Nunes put out a memo, he said it was false. When we had a laptop, he used it before an election to be politics and say that it was false and said it was the Russians. When he knew different, when he knew the intel, if you talk to um, John Radcliffe, DNI, he came out ahead of time and says there's no intel to prove that, and he used his position as chairman, knowing he has information the rest of America does not, and lied to the American public. When a whistleblower came forward, he said he, he did not know the individual, even though his staff had met with him and set it up. So no, he does not have a right to sit on that. But I will not be like Democrats and play politics with these, where they removed Republicans from committees and all committees. So yes, he can serve on a committee, but he will not serve on intel, because it goes to the national security of America, and I will always put them first, all right? And if you want to talk about Swalwell, let's talk about Swalwell, because you have not had the briefing that I had. I had the briefing and Nancy Pelosi had the briefing from the FBI. The FBI never came before this Congress to tell the leadership of this Congress that Eric Swalwell had a problem with a Chinese spy until he served on intel. So it wasn't just us who were concerned about it. The FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the intel committee that has the rights to see things that others don't because of his knowledge and relationship with a Chinese spy. They brought it to the works of the leaders. I've got that briefing. So I do not believe he should sit on there, that committee. And I believe there's 200 other Democrats that can serve on that committee. So this has nothing to do with Santos. Santos is not on the Intel Committee. But you know what? Those voters elected Schiff, even though he lied. Those voters elected Swalwell, even though he lied to the American public, too. So you know what? I'll respect his voters, too, and they'll serve on committees. But they will not serve on a place that has national security reverence because integrity matters to me. That's the answer to your question. See, I don't know where we end up with Ooh. McCarthy, but that's a pretty good starting point as yeah. far as I'm concerned. There seems to be an aggressiveness, a um, uh, a, a strategy that, that I like employed, and that is fight fire with fire. I mean, if the Democrats are going to run roughshod when they're the majority, why shouldn't the Republicans run roughshod when they're in the majority? You know, I, I, forgive me. Sounded a little Trumpy. Well, it sounded very much like Trump and Jim Jordan. I mean, it sounded a little bit like Jim Jordan. I, I'm thinking about that's Jordan a lot and the combative nature, the conflicting nature of which he addressed um, some of the issues at hand. I mean, what he basically is saying is these two guys are ass clowns <laughs> and they're not going to be on intelligence <laughs> committee. They just are not. Um, you can get angry. You can go right in Politico, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever you choose. But those two guys are not going to be allowed to be on the Intel Committee because the Intel Committee is different. And it is. I mean, some of these committees are ceremonial and symbolic. And I mean, you punish certain members by putting them on certain committees that you know they don't want. It's like purgatory. Why do I have to go but to this McCarthy committee? I don't want to be on. explained why. Sure. And the Intel Intelligence is Committee different. is very different. The, the Intelligence Committee consumes information that the body in general does not know. 
Now, now, do they drink coffee and elaborate one with another? Gossip is how you and I would call it, probably. Um, they're friendlies. They're friendlier's than friendly at times. But but the reality is, McCarthy said because Schiff and Swalwell have just been dishonest about what they learned on the Intel Committee, sharing some of the misinformation with the American public, they're not going to be allowed to, um, and I like it. I mean, I think, you know, fight fire with fire. I understand that we wish we could get back to a place where there was uh, bipartisanship and, and camaraderie and fellowship and, you know, good government was ultimately the goal of all. Um, if one team plays by those rules and the other doesn't, one team gets taken advantage of. And, and I'm tired of being the team getting taken advantage of. I'm ready to see our team demonstrate a little bit of fight, a little bit of aggressiveness. And I think in McCarthy, you saw some of the um, – we, we were a little bit concerned. Is he too buttoned up to be that guy? I mean, is he too um, polished to be that guy? You know how those California Republicans are. I mean, they're not quite as conservative as, as Republicans down south or in flower country. Well, I mean, he earns high marks as far as I'm concerned, and I think he addressed it in a very, very matter-of-fact way. But it wasn't a rant. He explained why he did what he did. Swalwell is not to be trusted. Schiff is not to be trusted. They've proven that they're not trustworthy. And because they're not trustworthy, they can't be on the Intelligence Committee. They can put them on. King Jeffries can nominate to any committee other than intelligence, and I'm fine with it. But not there. Not now. Back in a minute. Last hour of a Wednesday morning. If you want to get disgusted, watch Rev kiss butt for the next five or six or seven or eight <laughs> minutes, however long it is. Wayne Mullen. Like how good I do. Okay, introduce Wayne, Rev. I mean, the way you like introducing him. Go ahead. I'll, let, I'll get out of the way and let you do okay, this. Okay, well, he deserves it. He is our vice president and market manager for the community broadcasters radio stations in South Carolina. Okay, Wayne, you cool with that intro? I am. Man, okay, I, I want to make sure Rev does it because you know what his intent is. It's to brown nose, kiss butt. And, uh, and kind of nudge me out of the way. So he and gets, how did I do? Wayne, he gets first billing okay. on that. Well, I bought him a laptop yesterday, so he ordered. <laughs> That's to true. Happy. Deal. That's true. Okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll do Wayne after we're finished here because I need some things uh, around around the house. Uh, Wayne Mulling is here on behalf of our career fair. Um, radio is a very diverse animal. I mean, I, I've learned this in my going on eleven years of hosting a radio show. There are advertisers. There is community outreach. And then there are these non-traditional ways of which we integrate ourselves into the community. And um, and people's jobs are about as important as their, I mean, they're not as important as their faith and family, but they are very, very important. And you may be out there in a particular job you don't care much for. You may need a job. Um, Wayne is spearheaded. How many years in a row, um, Wayne, have we done this? The career fair? Yeah. This is our second year. Okay, the second career fair takes place this Saturday. Am I right? No, tomorrow. Takes place tomorrow. Th- tomorrow. See, that's how much I know. Right. Um, and this is actually our fourth career fair uh, because we do uh, uh, two a year. We actually started uh, in uh, August of 2021. So we did all of 2022, and now this is our fourth one. Okay, let's talk a little where, when, how. I mean, who's invited, yeah. who will be there. Um, I mean, if you're somebody looking for a job, if somebody needs employees, kind of walk us through the logistics. Well, this thing has really taken off, Ken. This will be actually our largest one yet. Um, we're doing it. It's called the Carolina Career Fair, and you can go to carolinacareerfair.com and get all the information. We're doing it tomorrow, Thursday, from 11 to 3 
in Orangeburg, in Sumter, and here in Florence at the uh, Staybridge Suites. In Sumter, it's at the uh, Sumter Civic Center, and in Orangeburg, it's at a building called the uh, Cinema. And we have actually like 115 different businesses that are represented, that are hiring full-time, and are hiring now that are going to be represented at these career fairs. So what do we hope happens? We hope some of these people that we've uh, associated with find great employees. Absolutely. And if there's somebody out there that's not very happy in their job, they find a better job. Um, that, that's kind of a, um, I mean, and in some degree, it's a community service. Am yeah. I right? Yeah, it is. And what we're seeing is that uh, we're seeing just from the number of people that are coming and looking for jobs, it's increasing every time. So the first one we did, there was probably a couple hundred people that came. The last one we did, we had over 500 that came looking for jobs, and many people were hired uh, on the spot. And what we've done this time, because a lot of people, we listen to people saying, hey, I wish you'd do it this way, or I wish you'd do it that way. So some of the things we've done, if you go to carolinacareerfair.com, there are three buttons there. One says Florence Market, one says Orangeburg, one says Sumter. You can click on that button. And you can actually see the logos of every single business that are going to be represented there and their hiring status. Uh, people ask us, well, how do I get to Staybridge Suites in Florence? So on carolinacareerfair.com, there's a button you can click on, and it actually brings up a Google map and shows you exactly where Staybridge Suites and the Sumter Civic Center and the cinema, where they're located. Uh, we've reached out to the high schools uh, because last time some of the high schools said, look, we've got seniors on a career path uh, program. We want to bring them to the career fair. So we've reached out to all of them and we're expecting them to come uh, to be at this thing. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be huge. And the one here in Florence at the Staybridge Suites, they always do such a class act, Roudix Hospitality. And uh, we just take over that whole wing there with their uh, studio, with the rooms there and uh, all of these businesses were going to be, re- if I start mentioning then I'll forget someone and offend somebody. But uh, just here in, in uh, Florence, in, in Florence, we have uh, over 42 local businesses that are hiring full time. In Sumter, there's almost 50. And in Orangeburg, I think 22 or 23. So do people need to bring their resumes? I mean, I, when, when they come? You know, come dressed. First of all, come dressed for the job you want. You know, not where you're at, but what you're, where you want to be. Dress up, you know, put on your best, bring a resume, bring several resumes that you can pass out. Be prepared to fill out applications. There are going to be tables there where people can sit down or stand up at a table and fill out applications on the spot. And I mean, it's everything from factory work to sales to uh, law enforcement to city uh, uh, positions that are offered. I mean, it's it's everything across the whole gamut that you can think of that are hiring today. And businesses are looking for people. And that's what time tomorrow? So it goes tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., all three uh, all three one of these locations. You can go there. You can, if you say, well, I want to go look at the one in Sumter, fine. You can go to carolinacareerfair.com. You can click on Sumter. You can see all of the businesses that are there hiring, and they're all at the same time, and all the information is there online. Okay. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank, Thank you. you. Wayne Mulling is with us. Um, Wayne's given us permission to make an announcement Friday that we've been waiting on Wayne to give us permission mm-hmm. to make an announcement Friday. I actually had a couple of people reach out to me last week when I toyed or, or kind of teased teasing. with the idea. Yeah. And yeah. I, Wayne, Wayne, Very did, exciting. Wayne, Wayne gave us the, uh, the go-ahead, the green light 
So this Friday morning, we've got an announcement that we're prepared to make, um, and Wayne has signed off on it. Rev says, no, nah, not until Wayne says it. Rev is just I mean, kisses, kisses Wayne's butt in a way that just makes me, you know, I, I mean, I understand, you know, the, I understand gaining favor with the bosses, mm-hmm. but Rev may take it to a to a new extreme. And a new high. 843 <laughs> And how do I do, six, by six, the way, do okay. oh, You do yeah. good. Okay. okay. He, he did well. well. He always does good on that. He don't do too good at everything else, but he, <laughs> really? he always does exceedingly well at that. No, Rev, Rev is, I mean, folks that listen to the show know this. I'm the mouth. Rev is the organization. I mean, he provides all the structure needed to make sure we're where we need to be, when we need to be in broadcasting, um, how we I do. Try. I'll tease you a little bit. We, we've got some things going on today right now for the first time we've ever had going mm-hmm. on and um we're it'll doing, be a part a of behind the scenes test and we'll tell you what it's all about on friday yeah yep. we, we think we're excited about it. wayne's excited about it and if wayne's excited rev is yep, and, so, and if rev yeah. is i am so there <laughs> really you know, there you go that's um, the way that works what, what they say it runs downhill right yeah. you, know, you know and i'm at the bottom of the hill so so i'm cool with that uh, yeah. 843-661-0937 is our number i, I want to go back real quick to the RNC, and I want to get your take on this. Um, the, the the Republican National Committee elects a chairman or woman. Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, is a an announced candidate, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Harmeet Dillon is an announced candidate, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and Ronna McDaniel is an announced candidate, if I'm not mistaken. And she's the current. She's the current. She will be the. I mean, she'll win. Uh, they're they're gathering in California. Today, tomorrow, and Friday, the election of a new chairperson will be Friday. And it's a little bit, I mean, when you think about what Trump has done, and he's changed the party, but but to suggest that Trump cuts both ways is quite the understatement in American politics. The only reason that Ronald McDaniel will be reelected chairman of the GOP is Donald Trump. I mean, that's the only reason. So the biggest change agent to come down the pike in a long, long time is going to force the RNC to not change. I mean, there, there's, 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 I don't know, there's, um, there, there's oxymoron in, or oxymoron. You see where I'm headed. I mean, it's, it's something that shouldn't be, but it is. And, and when, when Trump comes up, you know, when, when Trump went to the RNC and said, look, I've got all these bills. I've got some money, but I'd rather not spend my money if I don't have to. As much as I've done for the RNC, it seems to me that y'all should pick up the tab for all these legal expenses I've incurred because, after all, I breathe new life in this party. And the, 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 the committee, led by McDaniel, basically said, you're right, and we'll pick up the bill. Well, the change agent of all change agents should support Harbeet Dillon. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, if the, right. if, if the proper stars align and things work as they should, Donald Trump should say to McDaniel, hey, we didn't do so well in the last two election cycles. Um, therefore, we need to change coaches, change quarterbacks, um, change the leader of the band, so to speak. But that's not going to happen. And Terry Schilling wouldn't tell you that. I will. Uh, and I understand Terry's got more at risk than I do of how the RNC operates and, and the endorsement of a, I mean, I'm, I'll publicly endorse anybody other than who the person in charge is today, because I think the RNC has become, I don't say corrupt, but, but it's become a little bit too bureaucratic and the, the donors, I mean, the relationship between the big donors and the consultants, I mean, that, that Rob, it robs us of the resources needed 
to go head to head with Democrats in some of these swing states. In other words, if we're raising, I mean, I'm going to throw a number at you. Let's say the RNC raised $100 million. It'll be more. But let's, for argument's sake, say they raised $100 million and the overhead, quote unquote, is $25 million. That means $25 million goes to consultants and not the issue at hand. We're not talking about the debt ceiling. We're not talking about, you know, some of the culture wars. We're not talking about winning elections. Um, of the $25 million, of course, some of it's worth it. I mean, you need consultants. You need lobbyists. You need, you know, um, I mean, some overhead is legitimate, no doubt about it. But the Democrats have figured out a way to streamline some of that consulting. Um, I'll give an example. For every James Carville there is, there are five Republican consultants who have made it big. I mean, think about how many Republican consultants um, populate cable news and talk radios. I mean, every time you turn around, there's a Republican consultant. There's a Republican strategist. Um, I mean, I know a lot of these people by name. Some of you know Carl Rove is a Republican strategist. Um, David Axelrod is a Democrat strategist for every Carl Rove, uh, for, excuse me, for every David Axelrod, there's five or six or seven Carl Roves who have figured out a way to gain the system and gotten rich. And I'm not saying they don't offer benefit. I'm not saying they're not worth anything. They are worth something. They understand politics. If you listen to Rove, um, really get into the weeds and he does on election night. I mean, it's obvious he has an immense knowledge of collar counties and blue counties and and red counties and where the votes are yet to come in. I mean, he has a, a I mean, that's worth something. I mean, that's worth a lot. But is it worth 25, 30, 35% of the total take? No, it's not worth that much because that's money you're not spending in mobilizing voters or building some of these ballot harvesting organizations. See, I would argue that the reason the Republicans are behind in, in the election season is the Democrats don't have as many consultants making a million dollars a year. They, they, they've, they've got boots on the ground. They've got volunteers. They've got staff. I mean, they, they're knocking on doors, trying to ballot harvest. They're trying to find out where the unsolicited mail-in ballots went. And, um, and we've got Republican consultants on Fox News taking vacations in the Bahamas in the middle of election season. And, and I think we've gotten fat and happy. And I think the Democrats are far more effective at allocating their, their resources than the Republicans are. So, yeah, I'd love to see a change at the RNC. I just don't think we are. And I think the primary reason we're not going to see a change is the biggest change agent that has hit the Republican Party. And there's a little irony there. The, the, the guy that forces the party to change on this one particular <laughs> instance is the reason the party is not going going to change. Now, I don't know the outcome of the election. I don't have any idea how they will vote. But but my sources, uh, which is things I read and perceive to be true, tell me that um, because McDaniel blessed paying Trump's legal bills, most of the operatives within the RNC that are supportive of President Trump have probably gotten a call. I mean, it's 150 people that will decide. I mean, that that's the committee, 150 uh, I guess delegates is what we'd call those folks. They'll cast a ballot in favor of one candidate or another. And I got to believe that Trump has probably called eh, 75 or 80 to confirm his support unofficially. I mean, he's not publicly saying I support McDaniel, but I think because she was agreeable to paying the, the legal bills, he's um, he's he's off the record saying, you know, uh, turn around now. Now we know Trump to be what? I mean, to, to you know, a lot of the complaints and criticism of Trump is loyalty is what? A one-way street with Trump. I mean, he, he wants and demands 
total loyalty, he gives kind of loyalty mm. back in, in return. He's giving some back. Well, he's giving a, a, a little back, no question about it. Um, I, I thought of a question, though, when we had the guest uh, that was talking about the RNC this morning, and he mentioned he mentioned the presidential debate commissions that put together the debates for the presidential runs. And I always wondered why the RNC or whoever's representing the president's party, and in particular the Republican president's party, as to why they allow some of those moderators to be the typical Democrat shills. Your Stephanopoulos's, even Chris Wallace, you know, for what it's worth. You know, they end up arguing with them. It seems like taking the side of the, the Democrats and, and, and arguing with the Republican candidate. I mean, how do they let that happen if they're doing their job? They're, they're not. I mean, they, they that goes back to the consulting business. I mean, ABC News, CBS News, they'll hire some of these consultants to help organize the event. The consultants get exorbitant fees. Um I've always felt the best the best way to debate in American politics today is to allow Rachel Maddow to host one debate and Sean Hannity the next. I mean, you don't go in believing that you're getting a fair shake. I mean, if you're the Republican and Rachel Maddow is, you know, um, moderating the debate, you know for sure that you're not going to get a fair shake and you just kind of deal with that. And then the next week or two weeks later, you go to the University of South Carolina or Clemson and, you know, a debate is hosted by Sean Hannity. And, and I, I just think there would be a, I think the perception of those two is exactly what it should be. They're partisans. I mean, to some degree, they're hacks. I mean, they're, they're, they're well-compensated hacks and very capable hacks. But, but you know what you're getting with Hannity. You know what you're getting with Matt Al. Stephanopoulos, to your point, portrays himself as being a, a kind of a neutral arbiter. And nobody buys that. Huh. Nobody believes that, that Stephanopoulos, I mean, he, he worked for the Clintons. He's a, a major contributor to the Clinton Global Initiative. Um, he's a liberal Democrat activist is what he is or what he is. Chuck Todd, I mean, his wife, if I'm not mistaken, works for a, you know, a Democrat candidate or Democrat office holder or has in the past. So, so when, when NBC News employees, what was the big girl? The one that kind of interjected herself oh, into uh, the Candy debate. Crawley. Candy Crawley. Candy Crawley. Yeah. Uh, remember when she basically cleaned up the mess Barack Obama made as a neutral arbiter mm-hmm. and, and a moderator of a debate at CNN? I remember it well. So, so I've always wondered why the Republicans would expose themselves to that liability, because it's a political liability. I mean, if the referee, let, let's say, and I've used this analogy before, let's say the Gamecocks and Tigers are playing a football game next week. And every referee on the field, every every official on the field in the striped shirt went to South Carolina, lettered in football at South Carolina. I mean, are the Clemson fans going to be suspicious? Maybe, just maybe Sterling Sharp, George Rogers, and, you know, whomever have, have the ability to be completely unbiased and impartial, maybe. But, but you'd be naturally suspicious of that, you know, if that were the case. And, and I think the same thing happens to Republicans. You go into the debate expecting to be mistreated, but you keep going back. It's a little bit like the, the the guy that knows his girlfriend's prettier than he deserves, and she mistreats him, and he keeps going back. You know why he goes back? Because she's just real pretty, and I know I don't deserve her. You know, one of these days she's going to wake up and say, why is somebody that looks like me going out with somebody that looks like you? So the Republicans keep kind of going back because, once again, that's the established methodology of how we debate in American politics. And I'll give McDaniel a little credit. She pushed back. Now, I think she pushed back because Trump urged her to push back. And I think in the 2024 election season, you're going to see certain people be blacklisted. I just think the better way to do it is find people you know are partisans. 
And let's see if if um if Joe Biden can stand up to Clay Travis or or uh, Tucker Carlson. I mean, that would be the great debate. I mean, uh, in, in in the second week of October, we're going to have a debate on MSNBC hosted by Rachel Maddow between the Republican nominee for president and the Democrat nominee. But two weeks later on Fox News, we're going to have a debate hosted by whom? Tucker Carlson. And let's see who can stand against Rachel Maddow as a Republican. And who? I mean, can you imagine Joe Biden trying to answer questions that Tucker Carlson <laughs> asked? It'd be entertaining. I mean, it would be it would be insane. I mean, it would be like, wow, what is? I mean, imagine somebody as smart and quick witted as Tucker being allowed to to basically challenge the president. Uh, imagine Rachel Maddow, with all due respect, but see, the the Republican would be accustomed to it. I mean, you've not had a debate hosted by Rachel Maddow, but you ain't missed it by much when you have a George Stephanopoulos or a Candy Crowley or a, or a Jake Tapper or, or the, um, you know, the editorial board of the New York Times. I mean, and that's what makes the, the Democrats uncomfortable. So, so, you know, whomever the RNC chairperson is, they need to make sure debates are more fairly formatted than they historically have been. Take a break back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Scott in Laurenburg. Good morning. You're on the air. Yes, sir. I'm good. How are you? I totally agree with what you're saying as far as the debates are concerned. Yeah, to have Hannity or Bongino or somebody, you know, for the second debate, that would be awesome. But um, my question is this. Help me understand in my simple way of doing things, with the documents that are evaporating, they're going away, does somebody else know that those documents are being taken? In other words, you check a book out of the library, you got a library card, and they know that you've got it, and then, you know, they call you up and say, hey, uh, you know, you still got that library, you still got that book. Well, help me understand what the deal is with the documents then. It seems to me, and I'm speculating, thank you for the call, appreciate it. It seems to me that there would have to be some cataloging system. First of all, let, let's establish the premise. And, and once again, I don't know this to be true, but it sounds to me like we've gotten a little bit crazy with what we classify or not. That, that There are things now that I believe are classified that really and truly shouldn't be classified. We've got over a billion documents in America today that are classified. We got four and a half million people who have clearance. We got a million and a half that have what they call top secret clearance, um, interest pertaining to national security. Uh, a million and a half people have access to those to those documents. So let's make the assumption I have that we got too many documents classified, got too many damn people with access to those too many classified documents. Doesn't that make it harder to keep up with, harder to catalog? I mean, who who can keep up with a million documents? And isn't a million a lot harder than a billion? I mean, it's a thousand times harder to keep up with a billion documents mm -hmm. than it is a million. And maybe, I mean, I'm speculating again, maybe the National Archives is, is set up to manage a million classified documents, but they aren't set up to, you know, to deal with a billion classified documents. How loose and fast do they play with the rules? How much deep statism is involved in this? How 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 objective are they when when somebody comes in who is uh, more establishment oriented 
more, more in line with the, um, you know, I mean, if you're in Washington and been there a long time, the last thing you want is a lot of rambunctious outsiders coming along wanting to change the world of which you have um, inhabited, created, um, and benefiting from. So, so I don't have any idea what the cataloging system is. I mean, I know when you go to the library, you check out a book, you sign your name. I mean, I've not done it since the computer age, but but I guess now, I mean, I remember the old days when I was in school, you signed a book. I mean, you signed a little card in the back of the book. They cataloged that card. They knew you had it. If you were late, you got a letter. If you were later, you got a letter with a little fine. If you didn't return the book, you went to the library. My mom would go, in my case, every now and then, she'd be furious with me because I couldn't find the book, didn't know where the book was, lost the book, whatever. Dog ate the book. Um, and there would be, you know, uh, uh, you had to replace the book. You had to pay for the book. I don't have any idea what the National Archives does in relation to cataloging. But, but it seems to me that we got too many documents classified and too many people with access to that too many um, documents. Um, when Mike Pence ends up, and I don't think anybody believes, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Mike Pence's way of politics. I don't think it's in time for kinder, gentler, more decent uh, politicians. I wish it were, but, but I wish, you know, every kid was born healthy. I wish everybody had money to bank. I mean, I got to meet the world where it is. And I think right now the political world is a bit out of balance. And I think the better, ah, the be- the people better equipped to deal with it as it is are people like Donald Trump instead of, instead of Mike Pence. But, but I don't think anybody believes that Mike Pence was intentionally breaking the law. I mean, he could have. I don't know. I mean, we don't know what kind of Pence, uh, kind of guy Pence is. I mean, how many times have we heard the story? They were a normal neighbor, you know, until they killed forty people. So, so I, you know, I'm I'm just speculating. All of this is total conjecture. But, but with the Bides, it's different, right? I mean, is uh-huh. Pence living a lavish lifestyle? I don't think he is. Has Pence historically been one that we perceive as somewhat of a Boy Scout? As I said this morning. Some lawyer went to Pence yesterday or the day before and said, but Mr. Vice President, we found some classified documents in your Indiana home. And he said, son of a biscuit. I mean, he just doesn't impress you to be the kind of guy that would be involved in any sort of antics. Now, Trump, it's a different story. Am I right? I mean, I'm a Trump supporter. You know, everything's a, a different story well, I mean, with Trump. Well, of course, but, but would it surprise you if Trump behaved a little bit differently regarding classified documents than Mike Pence, you would expect him to behave a little bit different. Um, Trump has a kind of a petulant streak about him. And and I can see Trump. I said it yesterday. I can easily see Donald Trump saying to the people responsible for moving, you know, whatever they moved out of the white house into Mar-a-Lago. I can see Trump saying, I didn't lose this election. Anyway, grab those three boxes. I'm taking them with me. I mean, can't you really? I mean, would that surprise you if Trump did that? It wouldn't surprise me at all. Now, now, now the vice president, because talking about Biden when he was vice president and now Mike Pence, the vice president, I mean, I've, I've heard all my life that the vice president can't declassify information. That's not completely and totally true. The vice president can declassify any information that he formally classified. If he is the originator of the classification, he can declassify that material now is this that that similar material don't know don't have any idea but but i think to the caller's point how is it that so many people are committing felonies and they don't know they're doing it i mean have we gotten to a place where nobody pays the national archives any attention well i mean when you say okay 
Is, is self-reporting a crime? I mean, if you self-report, let's say Mike Pence found a document in his home. He still committed a felony because he mishandled classified information. I mean, is he going to plead to a lesser charge? I don't know. Don't have any idea. But but we're talking about self-reporting. It doesn't matter. It's still a crime. I mean, if, if, you, if you are in possession of classified material outside of the SCIF and, and certain designated areas, I think the Oval Office is a designated area, you're committing a felony. I mean, if you or I did that, Rev, if we walked, if we somehow gained access to the National Archives and if we walked out of there with material, we would be charged with a felony regardless of whether we self-reported or not. Well, we've had people that are members of the military that have called the show to tell what they, you know, with different clearance levels, what the requirements were and how they could handle and not handle those But documents. what we've not had happen is somebody in the political world. Right. See, the members of the military may believe that this is standard operating procedure. Well, in your world, it may be. But here's what I have found in my time in politics. There's a set of rules for you and a set of rules for, for us. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just the way and it apparently is. apparently there's also a set of rules for Donald Trump. Well, I mean, it, uh, apparently it's so. Separate. Well, I mean, the, the, the double standards are what you're talking about here. But but once again, when when members, when honorable men and women of the armed services say, hey, here's how it goes down. Here's the way it works. I think you're as honest and sincere as the day is long. I also think you're wrong because I don't think the, that, that rule applies to Congress. Why? I don't know. Should it? Probably. But I don't think it does. So we've had several members, in particular from Shaw, you know, over in Sumter, that I think have some uh, association with Shaw that have called in and say, hey, let me tell you how this works. Well, I think it does work that way for members of the military. I don't think it works that way for members of Congress. How many members of the military have mishandled classified information and just had a press conference say, sorry, didn't mean to do it that way? No. I mean, top secret, sensitive, compartmented information we, we understand, we think, New York Post is reporting that the Biden family are in possession or have been in possession of top secret, sensitive, compartmented information. We believe that Biden's lawyers found that sort of information at the Penn Biden Center in Washington. What happens to a member of the military if they find in your hotel room, in your car, in your jet, in your fighter plane, classified top secret information i think something different happens to you court martial than happens to well i mean we okay if if the same rules apply across the board if they're in a the double standard then today today donald trump hillary clinton mike pence and joe biden should be charged with felonies now you can't indict a sitting president i still think the constitution is clear on that so biden would have to wait until after he left office but we should we should make criminal charges against Joe Biden, excuse me, against Hillary Clinton, against Mike Pence, and against Donald Trump. I bet we don't. Let's go to the phone. And any other former president or congressman or senator that happens upon some classified information in their personal residence or whatever. Correct. Uh, here is Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. So, you know, listen, uh, the classified document information, um, you do have to go to intent here. And I don't do, think do you I do, Jeff. I don't, I don't think you do. I think it's pretty clear. I read the law. I think if you are in possession of classified information outside of designated areas, it doesn't matter what your intent is. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I'll just say that if you were to probably go through any of these ex-presidents, 
ex uh, White House personnel. And I don't know if you caught this, but, you know, they talk about these skiffs, these special rooms. The White House in its entirety is a skiff. Okay, so the executive branch is going to have faux pas. And I believe Mike Pence's was a faux pas. I, I think he's a good man. I don't think he wishes any harm on the country. Um, that, you know, but he you, broke the you law. You, you, I, I mean, inadvertently, you know, did he take the documents or did somebody put them in his folder boxes? I can believe that somebody put them in his folder boxes and they ended up at his house. Can you? I can believe that with Pence. I couldn't believe it with okay. Trump or Biden or Clinton. So, so the difference is, and, and, and you know, you're going to say this is partisan, but the difference is Trump was asked. They knew he had it. They asked him to return it. He refused to return it. He said he returned everything. He didn't. And they had to do an FBI search and a, and, and, and a seizure of the documents. Biden, they found the documents, and they called the National Archives. And they called the Justice Department, and they called the FBI, just like Mike Pence did. No, you're, you're wrong there. Good. No, you're wrong there. Okay, Would t- t- explain why. The, 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 the Biden, the Biden lawyers, his personal lawyers, called the White House. The White House called the National Archives. The National Archives never notified DOJ. The Inspector General asked the the National Archives, "Why aren't you notifying the Justice Department?" He, on his own volition, went to the um, and his name is Dr. Brett Baker. I mean, he's the he's the he's the IG of the National Archives. That's the only way. Joe Biden never self-reported. I mean, to suggest that is just fundamentally dishonest. Joe Joe Biden never saying, self-reported Joe, this this accusation saying, of a crime. Okay, you're saying that because Joe Biden, Biden never reported it to law enforcement officials. I mean, he, he yeah, reported saying, it to the National Archives, but that's not a law enforcement official. So Joe Biden never self-reported. Okay. You're saying Joe Biden's lawyers, after they talked to the archives, the archives asked them to talk to the DOJ, then you don't think that you, you, you can't see the logic leap. The, the Biden lawyers that didn't have security clearance are looking for classified documents in a private residence of a current president that didn't have uh, security, I mean, security clearances. So so Biden knew that his lawyers didn't have clearance, but they were searching for classified documents. You, so so in, in, in your mind, that puts it in the same league as Trump. Oh, it, this is far worse than Trump. I mean, this is not even close oh to what God. Trump's doing. Yeah, okay. Of course. Okay. <laughs> of course you do. Well, let me get, we got to take a break, Jeff. I'm sorry. Back in a minute, 843 661 0937. Did the man just say an isolated tornado can't be ruled out? Does he not know us the last week of January? You can't do that. Maybe Al Gore and John Kerry know what they're talking about. Uh, hey, I owe Jeff an apology. I mean, we're up against it. We had a lot of guests this morning. I mean, we've been behind since the get-go, and uh, Beverly McKee with Cooks of Crisis here, and we want to make sure we give her ample time to um to tell our listeners about what they've got going on. So, Jeff, please, please, please understand that that was not me um, trying to bully myself in a conversation but rather some obligations we had to meet and i'd love you to call back tomorrow and let's continue the debate about the uh the minor offenses of donald trump and the major offenses of our current president exactly. joe biden
Exactly. The invitation stands, Jeff, and I know you'll take me up on it. Beverly McKee, Cooks for Christ, is with us. Uh, we're raising money for a gentleman named Bobby uh, Poston. Beverly, good morning. How are you? We are doing well. So tell us a little bit about Mr. Poston. Okay. Bobby is 70 years old, and he lives here in Florence. In 2014, he was hospitalized with renal failure due to diabetes, and he received dialysis for several years, and then one of his daughters, Denise, donated a kidney to him in 2015. Um, Due to his diabetes, he lost his right leg just below the knee in July of 21, and then in March of 22, he lost his left leg for the same reason. He has two prostheses and a walker that helps him get around, but he needs a walk-in shower with a seat um, to help him with his daily grooming needs. So we're trying to raise money for a specific reason, Yeah, for a handicapped bathroom. Okay. When is the event and how can people participate? Well, the event is actually tomorrow, so um, we still need volunteers. We'll be at the West Florence Fire Station on Pine Needles Road. And if you can volunteer just a couple of hours, that would be fine all day. We'll take you however we can get you. Um, You can call 843-229-0348, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about volunteering. But we'll be selling plates from 11 to 6, chicken bog, green beans, slaw, and bread. And we'll also have a bake sale all day. $10 $10 a plate. Uh, what about delivery? Is there is it too late to get it's, them delivered? It's too late. I started okay. routing last night, and I, I will be routing until about 9 o'clock tonight. So you got to go get your own chicken bog, but it's well That's worth right. it. And Reb brags about how um, efficiency at uh, its best. efficient <laughs> they get people in and out of there. So the bake sale is all day. Yes, it is. Lunch mm-hmm. and dinner will be from 11 until 6, so there's no yeah. break in, in service here. No, we don't break anymore. We just go all day, and we try to end about 6, because, you know, we got a lot of cleanup to do afterwards. There's a lot to do afterwards as well. Uh, let's go back to the volunteer. If somebody wants to volunteer, that there's not a long review i mean you just show up and you put those people to work we will just come to the sign-in table and we will put you to work we need drivers and we estimate delivering about 20 probably about 2500 plates but we have lots of deliveries um stacy the son-in-law he owns a schoolhouse restaurant and he has contacts in scranton lake city kingston we're going we are we have lots of -of out-of-town deliveries so we could use a driver, and then, of course, we, you know, use you working on the line. Okay, and that's tomorrow from 11 a.m. until 6 p.m. Um, you can drive up, not even get out your car. No, they'll bring it right to they'll bring it right to your door, won't they, Dave? I love it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and they, they get you in and out of there. Very. Well, I mean, and, and Beverly and those does, do such an exceptional job, and um, oh, you, you know, me. identifying people that need help have run on hard times, and I mean, it's it's I mean, it just just cooks for Christ. I mean, the message of Christ is not only a story of salvation, but I believe it's kind of um, how we were supposed to treat one another Absolutely. and care for one another Absolutely. and provide for one another. Mm-hmm. We are our brother's keepers, um, mm-hmm. says the good book. So, um, yeah, Bobby Thompson, 70 years old, needs our help in the construction of a, I guess, a, um, a compliant bathroom yeah, that allows yeah. him to, to right. deal with the challenges he has. Tomorrow at the West Florence Fire Station, that's on Pine Needles Road from 11 until six if you want to volunteer call beverly at your number again 843-229-0348 see only as a radio show host can you ask a woman to didn't your wife her phone number <laughs> you know and, i just thought and about get that. away with that that's right yeah just ask women their phone numbers i just thought about that <laughs> and she I gave said. it to you and get it that's right that's exactly right yeah good luck if i wasn't on the radio uh, hey enjoy your day we'll talk tomorrow